everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. Happiest holidays. If you celebrate Christmas, Merry Christmas. I know the holidays are weird this year, and I know a lot of people are wanting to be kept company, and I certainly don't want anybody to feel alone if they don't want to be. And I thought maybe I was going to take this week off, but I actually won't have a podcast next week. I do have one this week. And I decided instead of snorkeling through vapid pop culture nonsense, which, you know, I love I love the nonsense, and maybe make it more uh, personal, more of a heart-to-heart. I struggle with knowing if people want to know more, like, a detail about me personally, because it's, it's a little bit of a funny thing where I don't, I don't always know what people are here for. But if there's one thing I love, and one thing that I desperately have benefited from in 2020, and I miss is human connection, is, is, is the art of a heart-to-heart, hanging heart-to-hanging heart, and the be there in five cents, if you will. Um, I love to talk about your hopes, dreams, fears, regrets over a bottle of wine that runs through your veins till you get to the, you know, third glass and the topics start to bleed together and you don't even know where you started and you find yourself in a emotional web of, of, uh, hope and excitement and connection. And you walk away from the conversation feeling empowered and you don't even know why. I love those types of, you know, dinners and dinner parties and, or Zooms, or whatever you're doing now with girlfriends, where all the world's problems can be solved over a drink. That's the best feeling in the world. And a big part of why I love my family is we have a lot of fun and we talk a lot and we'll sit at the table for hours and hours on the holidays. And I thought maybe I'd invite myself to your table. And even though this is one sided, we could have a heart to heart, we could have a conversation. Uh, I asked people on Instagram and in the Facebook group, if you, if we had dinner together, like, what would you ask? What would you want to talk about? What would you want me to elaborate on? And people's questions were really interesting. And it was kind of a really like amazingly perfect range of light and heavy of the range I so often talk about I'm trying to achieve. And um, as I was answering the questions, I'm recording this after the fact, uh, at one point I hear myself say, uh, wanting the best of both worlds. And I thought, you know what, maybe that's what I'll do. I'll, the way I feel about 2020 is heavy and it is intense. And this episode gets intense and I probably, I think I cry maybe twice. You might not be able to hear it. I try to be, I, I don't want to be that person, but um, <laughs> I was like, let's just leave this as, this one as intense and finish out the year. Um, and I'll do a nice long episode. And, uh, then even though I'm off next week, I'll start out 2021 right after the new year. We'll do the Beth of Both Worlds, the B side, the lower quality side, the more vapid side. And we'll try to start the year out on as light of a note as we can. Because, you know, the the recruitment of it all, right? Well, I'm a sorority gal, pro con pro. Um, I want to be able to uh, land on a positive if I can, but... I don't think this year we have to end out on positive. I don't think that's the point. I think the point um, of this year is the end of this year is to reflect and be realistic and to not have to uh, lobby for silver linings that aren't there, to not have to be toxic and positive toward things that were so deeply negative and unwelcome. But rather, we can think about life lessons. We can think about what we've learned. We can think about and hope for better days moving forward. And Let's just have a heart-to-heart and talk through, I guess, some of the things that are on my mind and heart that you guys prompted me about, uh, if you don't mind. Um, I guess I'll, maybe I'll start with some like lighter questions. Somebody in the Facebook group said, the decision at the start of the dinner to have white or red wine and why? 
Well, so, okay, I actually, so the progression of how I would, if it's, let's say you're having dinner, uh, not only would I not make the dinner, but I would buy it all, but beautifully assemble it because I'm more of an assembler than I am a maker. Like, I think there's a lot of actually really great boxed red wines that are better than bottles because you can have a glass here and there and it operates more as like a sfuso or a tap, which is very popular in other parts of the world, but very uh, over typecast with Franzia. <laughs> in the United States, but so I, I have a lot of carafes. I put wine in carafes, like I'll do a white and a red, so it feels like you're having an Italian house wine almost. And people never know where it's like, it doesn't really matter. So I'll do something like really nice if I need to, but most of the time people just want to like something easy drinking, pretty palatable for red and non red drinkers alike. But no, I do not typically start out with red wine if I was going to do like a full progressing dinner. I would go like the, the more of the so in Italy, right? There's an the cocktail hour is called aperitif and you typically serve like a drier drink uh before the meal to stimulate your appetite you have hors d'oeuvres antipasti whatever it may be and you would have a drink that's low in sugar and pretty low in alcohol um they shouldn't be that uh, heavy or alcoholic so you don't like fall asleep and for a wine-based beverage like um, an Aperol spritz, for example, is what, you know, is often had in Italy, what I had my wedding, um, Prosecco, an Italian wine that can be dry or, or like semi-sweet, but you would choose, uh, you know, an extra brute or brute one. Or uh, there's always like a Spanish cava or um, maybe a Sauvignon Blanc. Um, uh, for cocktails, I mean, you can really do whatever, whether it's a gin and tonic or um, a martini or whatever it is, but I, I, people start, and my understanding is people start out with cocktails or start out with drier, uh, wines or proseccos because there's an, there are, there are aperitifs before your meal that stimulate your palate. And there's, then there's digestifs and we start the meal with something that's not too sweet and that's light. So you can progress and a digestif is, is kind of, it's a nightcap. It, it's after you consume a meal. It's to help you digest. It's to help you finish. It's it's often often more indulgent or sweet. And that's when you have like your ports, your dessert wines, some liqueurs and cordials. You you guys get it. So I actually that's that's how I would design it if I was going to do like a proper dinner party. Is the um, progression of your palate and your needs. And I love the way these things are done in Italy. And um, yeah, at my wedding we had this giant aperitif with um, Negronis and uh, uh, Aperol Spritz and um, Prosecco and all these light appetizers. There was an entire aged Parmesan cheese wheel that they just dug into and people like took serve, they, they just like ate from the wheel, you know, prosciutto and all those things. And like, it was so magical, but I didn't get to go because I wanted photos like the basic BIM on a boat. And I got really seasick because I was really hungover on my wedding day. Um, <laughs> but also I, uh, my photographer, Caitlin James, who was amazing and you should follow her on Instagram. If you don't, she, um, needed the right light for the boat and boats move on like water moves. So we were doing like these sharp, sharp turns and I just got so sick. And so I had to like sit with my head between my knees during my cocktail hour and I'm still mad about it, but it's funny now. And also when people are like, Oh my God, you were hung over for your wedding day. What a nightmare. I'm like, actually, no, I would do it again. And I'd do it again, pop, 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 you know, TikTok. Um, because I don't, I think when brides 
turn in like at eight or 9 PM to put on their silk pajamas and get a good night's rest. Like, yeah, that's fine. But this is the one moment in my life where everyone I've ever loved is in one place. And I'm going to prioritize going to bed, getting sleep and looking pretty tomorrow over raging with the best of them. Like, absolutely not. I, 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 I was out really late Thursday. I was out really late Friday. We both were, I didn't feel the best on Saturday, but like, I don't really care because yes, you know, actually we were technically already married because we had to get married in the U S because the Italian one was, you know, symbolic. Well, the wedding part was important. Yes. The important part was for me was sharing with it, sharing it with everybody and being with everybody. And I didn't look as good as I could have. And my hair was a mess and I forgot my veil and there's so many things that went wrong, but I had the best goddamn time and I do it again. And I just think you don't, don't prioritize the way you look over spending time with the people that are the most important to you. Like if you want to party, party, you've done it before you do it again you can rally that's probably the worst advice i've ever given but i don't care i really it was really important to me um don't be blessed if i met taylor swift what would i say i would ask about what i wear (laughs) i probably wear like a black crew neck t-shirt or long sleeve bodysuit tucked into a black or a dark distressed high-waisted denim uh, with layered necklaces, a bold lip, and maybe a strong middle part, and um, would just kind of look like I could be a stagehand or give a keynote or I was working at a makeup counter. Like, I don't know. I, I like those kind of backgroundy type people that work in jobs where they're not supposed to be the star. I, I love to put an effort to my look. I too put an effort to my appearance. I like getting ready. It's my yoga. I enjoy putting on makeup and all that stuff. I don't resent it. Um, and, and I, and, but I like to be maybe more subtle and classic in how I dress and like a little bit of casual, but then my hair and makeup's like very done. And I know my face looks good. You know what I mean? That's usually my priority. Um, when I'm, I, I want to draw a line between effort, like putting in good effort and also not trying too hard. Um, so I'd probably be kind of low key and casual. I actually feel more confident if I'm dressed a little bit more casually, but my hair and makeup are done. Um, I, I, I like to be like ripped jeans, relaxed, but still somehow look like I could be thrown on a blazer and be formal. Uh, but I would ask her about her mom and her health and how she's doing. And I would ask her about the version of Taylor in the Palm outfit that sawed off the TS6 plane wing when Reputation came out and that graffitied Reputation on a gold plane that I think was supposed to be another album that got grounded uh, because she had to address the very public feud and fallout that she had and took on kind of a darker persona. Why would every single tailor in that room be from a different era except the one who cut off the plane wing and graffitied it is wearing this like Gucci pink palm print she wore for one day uh, when she walked out of her New York City apartment in like July of 2016 or 2017 maybe. Um, it's so weird to me. And I think that something got grounded or canceled. And I think there was a lot going on behind the scenes when we didn't know she was getting along with Scott, was not getting along with Scott. And, you know, based on the fact that she's still kind of singing and talking about this era. And I just think it was so hurtful to her and so much deeper and darker than we'll ever know. And yeah, I'd just be like, how are you? Like, how how the hell do you maintain your sanity and your mental health despite the immense public scrutiny you're, you're faced with? I would tell her that I'm sorry that I did until I got in a position where I felt misunderstood and people would publicly talk about me poorly and then I'd be sitting behind my screen crying for my own intentions. I didn't realize how harmful it is for people like me to speak 
in forms of media like this carelessly and speculate. And it's one of those things where if you're talking about about somebody in a Facebook group or on Reddit or whatever, you're just assuming they won't see it because they're they've got enough going on and your words don't really have any bearing and it's just like fun, lighthearted, you know, snark. And like sometimes it is. And most of the time I do not check, but sometimes I accidentally come across something and it derails my night and it kills me. And I think about it and everything I do is in response to it. That's how sensitive people work. And the reality of life is we want to be able to like joke and have fun and talk about people. But I don't think anybody whose nature is fundamentally sensitive or empathetic, uh, not is, 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 you know, humble to a degree that doesn't think they're all that great it affects people and i and i do not see how on that scale at that level of scrutiny you would be as normal and well adjusted as she is without crumbling and i really that's why i think she really does not look at anything i don't i don't know if i could at her level i still it's like i want to i always want to base what i'm doing more on the positivity than the negativity but i totally get how hard it how badly it hurts when people are negative, especially when you feel like your own vulnerability and opening, you know, openness is being used against you. Like if somebody said something to me about childless millennials, like that was gut wrenching for me. And I cry every time I get bad feedback about it. Cause I'm like, it's, it's, it, it wasn't about anyone else. It wasn't meant to take from anyone else. It wasn't meant to say your situation's not hard. I just wanted to be able to be honest about mine, but it's just like you, everything is subjective. Everyone's coming from their own place, it's probably a good one and feels a certain way about what you do. And, you know, it just is what it is. And I think I'm very fascinated by how public people navigate this. I think for her, it's especially interesting because when she was open and involved with everyone, it kind of did get turned around on her. And then it makes her withdraw. And I hate that as a fan, but I get it as a person who does a public facing thing. Um, I mean, if I felt really comfortable, I'd be like, can you just tell me why you and Carly aren't friends anymore? <laughs> um, I think I would, uh, you know, ask what kind of wine she drinks. You know, she never, she doesn't, she doesn't Kylie Jenner it up. She doesn't show herself in glam. She doesn't show herself on her jets. She has more money than God, but she really is tasteful about what she shows of her life and her interior decor style is, is not ostentatious. And I, I always want to know, like, what's the coolest effing thing you've ever done? Like, what did you rent an island? Did you take everyone you've ever known and love somewhere and fly them out outside of a pandemic? I know she would never do what Kim K did. Did, did, did you know, tell me the coolest, fabulous life of thing you've ever done because you never brag about how successful you are and you're a, a brilliant businesswoman. Um, I talked about interior design and real estate and, you know, ask about those remaining few minutes of all too well we haven't heard. But I'd make sure... She knows that I think reputation is a masterpiece, that people sleep on Don't Blame Me, on King of My Heart, on Getaway Car, on Call It What You Want. And I think I'd, you know, be like, thanks for the memories. Thanks for playing the soundtrack to my life. Thanks for making it cool to be in your feelings and to process them. Thanks for making it cool to love poetry and literature and words. Thanks for making the marketing process of music fun for putting so much effort into uh, elevating this experience for your fans in a way that has not only entertained me, but has been an, an integral part of building my own career is just talking about her because uh, there's so much to say, you know? I mean, the list goes on and on, but, uh, oh, I'd ask her about the boat in the, in the Virgin Islands when she looked sad. I still feel sad when I think about that. 
and I don't necessarily think we think, I don't think that situation's what we think it is. Like, I just don't think she got, like, up and left by Harry Styles on an island. I think there's something else to that. And why were the paparazzi there? Because she knows how to hide. I'd, if I, yeah, if it was like a, I can ask you anything, tell me everything, I mean, they'd go so much deeper. I'd be like, when did you tell people to take your picture? And when was it a coincidence? When was it invasive and when, when did it, you know, help, did it serve you in some sort of press narrative? Um, what is it like, you know, kind of orchestrating a marketing plan for an album and a launch and how far in advance and how do you put together these elaborate numerology type things? Why are you, why is the phone ringing at minute 31 and 13 seconds of this random Apple music video? And then you say verbatim a tweet that you wrote August 26, 2014. What does it mean? <sighs> anyway, I have a lot I'd say, but just, 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 just a start. Um, people also ask me about like my thoughts or like my interactions with other podcasters and like people say there's room for everyone. Is that really true? Blah, blah, blah. And I kind of jokingly answered like short answer. Nope. Uh, but what I, but yeah. Okay. So I, I've had an overwhelming amount of positive experiences. I think with, with most people I meet, they're really cool. They're really normal. I really enjoy interacting with them, but I think there's a real spectrum of people that, really genuinely want to support other people in their industry and people who do the bare minimum to promote an episode they're on they will like tag you but put your name in white on a white background so like they know nobody can click it like the stupidest stuff happens where I'm like seriously I feel like I feel like sometimes people have been on and like since I'm not the biggest podcast they won't really promote it because I almost part of me is and this is probably in my head to a degree but I'm like are you embarrassed like that I'm not like that big of a podcast you don't want to share it with people or I don't know it's it's an interesting thing where I never quite know how to feel and it's like sometimes you'll record with people and like the, they'll never use it like that's happened to me before um but then there's people like Nora McInerney it's like girls gotta eat like these women who have done so much to support me and to share their audiences with me that I'll go to the ends of the earth for you guys know I love Grace and Becca and Ashley and Raina and um, like, I mean, Danny Pellegrino is such a delight and Heather McMahon's been on the podcast a couple of times. Like there's great people that I've gotten to know that I think are good at their jobs and confident in what they do and really cool about it. And it's one of those things where a lot of my experience with podcasters is not really the people I've had on. It's the people that I've tried to coordinate with or have them on my show or them be on mine behind the scenes that are just to seem very unwilling to share their audiences um, where we have like a clear amount of overlap where we could swap and they won't. Um, and I'm more careful about that now too. I think it's fun to do like a collab crossover thing, but it is an interesting dynamic when people will want to just be on yours, but won't have you on theirs. Like you're not good enough or you won't bring enough audience. I feel like that happens to me a lot. Um, I don't know. It's an interesting thing, but that's why I kind of took full ownership over not having a co-host, over not needing somebody else. Like, I want the default setting to be just me. I don't want to apologize because it's just me. Like, this is it. And any guests are additional. And now I don't actually really pursue guests at all um, unless they're people I've become friends with or I, there's a specific topic I want to talk about. And it's not to hoard you guys from them. It's that I kind of did want to do something different and I did want to anchor this myself and... Um, I think that kind of works to my disadvantage too, because I don't do, I don't have a lot of guests on and I, and I think people might take that the wrong way too. Like I don't want them on, but really it's just, I'm, it's not a guest based show. Um, the guests are more based on people I know that 
there's a lot of overlap with that it's fun for us to talk and for you guys to hear it. And I love to connect with other people in the same industry. And I think that I always say there's space for everyone because I genuinely believe that like other people can do things similar to the things you're doing and it doesn't have to compromise anything you are. It doesn't mean they're going to take what's yours. It just is kind of an additional thing. And I'm always looking for new media and new things to care about. And I want to get more people on the map who are not celebrities, especially. Um, But I also get to, I felt sometimes like there's people that have done things that are super similar to things I've done. And and it stings a little because especially if it's more popular, right? Like I'm only human. Uh, So it's an interesting thing where I've, I would say my experiences are largely popular. Most of the bad experiences I have are behind the scenes that you wouldn't know. If as, as much as you want to hear me dish, I'm not going to talk badly about people in my own industry. I'm not insane. Just as I want someone, want somebody to put me on blast. But I think with any industry, especially ones where there's a lot of public facing figures, it's all, it's hard to, it's hard to read people. You're often dealing with people's agents and managers, just like, you know, I have people email Courtney. I mean, so it's, it's, it's really hard to get a read on things sometimes, but the first two years, when because I'm in New York a decent amount, um, when I was like out promoting the book or when I was in LA or doing different things, and um, I'm always like trying and shopping different things up behind the scenes that like probably never pan out that you don't hear about. But uh, when I'm like do on work trips or I would be somewhere for a show and I would reach out to people, it is interesting how many people just will not respond or will are not interested whatsoever and i think that the nature of life is people don't aren't interested in you unless they have a baseline familiarity of who you are and to pitch yourself or for them to come on your show and if you they've never heard of it to them it's a waste of their time and it's nothing right but i've had so several examples of people that have reached out to me cold turkey as if that was our first interaction because they then become more aware of me as my show got more popular and then um, I'll be like, hey, you want to do a swap, this, that, or the other? And I'm like, LOLing. I'm like, I've been trying to reach you for years. <laughs> um, and it's not always their fault. Like my email is a black hole. And I'm trying to get uh, better about that. Um, and Courtney helps me stay on top of it. But um, yeah, anyways, it's just interesting. So I, I think it's a mixed bag. I think it's a mixed bag. Like everything, some people you meet with are so confident and supportive and are doing their own thing. And they're... They do, you know, you do yours and they're happy to share it. Some people hoard their audiences and don't want you to be funnier than them or don't want you to have more insight than them and are very careful about who they bring on. And I think some people feel like they got, they put other people on the map and then, you know, it's frustrating to watch them shine. Right. Um, And I don't know. I think it's like a bit all over the place. So but that's kind of like the showbiz of it all, if you will. Not that this is necessarily showbiz, but I think that's how it goes anywhere uh, with any sort of medium is that, you know, you, for the most part, are confident in what you do and what you have to offer and you don't let any jealousy consume you. But it is hard. Just like I said, like, it was hard watching how that guy on Twitter, like, did uh, Gilmore Girls during the pandemic a thread and like Lauren Graham's all up on it and be like, I'm dying. And, you know, I did that same concept in like sep- like August or September and it doesn't go viral, which is fine because virality is a function of quality. And if yours is good, yours should go viral. But I'm, I'm not, I, I have a soul. I was like, oh man, I wish my thing would have been more popular or gotten through to them. Because that's like the thing I'm the biggest fan of in the world, but it didn't and it's whatever. And it's not that he copied me. It's just that his was probably funnier and I need to get over it. 
so and like the, with the world and that that it actually did do pretty well on TikTok. And the thing with TikTok is the nucleus is repetition. So if you make up a concept, um, then other people repeat it. And that's the whole point. And that's fine. And some people are going to be better than the original. And um, yeah, so it's, I don't know. I, I have a ton of insecurities and I definitely get jealous and uh, I'm spummed when I kind of do similar things and other people's are way more popular. And I do feel like off, that happens kind of often like there were even with popular girl handwritings, there was something I saw recently that went viral about it. And I'm like, I really don't feel like a lot of people were talking about that. <laughs> but maybe I didn't already, like, I don't know. I think the world is full of uh, deep fried memes, ideas, and regurgitated concepts that no one, that are never really original, that you hear in passing, that you can't necessarily place where you heard them, and that you evolve and make your own, and that everyone wants to take credit for it. But the fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter. You know, you can credit people the best you can, but whoever does the best version of it hopefully will rise to the top and they deserve it. I try to keep my head straight on straight about these things, but it doesn't mean they don't hurt. And I can't believe I'm saying these things, but yeah. Anyways, long story short, I, um, I really like this industry. I like a lot of the women I've met. Like I think about like a Hannah Burner. God, she's a, she's a freaking delight. She was so cool and so supportive and so easy to talk to. And I was like, and I thought I didn't, I was not expecting that. I don't know what I expected, but I think I just thought, I don't know. Cause she had asked me to swap and I was like, oh, that's so nice. But I think she probably had seen me on another or heard of me on another podcast or something. And I, I wasn't sure if it was more like she just needed a guest and I happened to be in town or something. But Courtney and I were like obsessed with her. She was so much fun and so nice to me. And she didn't really have any familiarity with me whatsoever. So, um, yeah, anyways, it's, it's a real mixed bag, but I will give a ton of credit to Ashley and Raina because them putting me on girls got to eat when I was really small made a really big difference. And that's the power of sharing your platform with people. And what I like about them too, is they don't have on like the biggest stars and celebrities. They have on interesting people that are subject matter experts or, you know, specific types of comedians or that can serve their audience the best they can for the topic they're going into. And I think that's really, really cool. And I never want my lack of co-host to seem like I don't want to share with other people. Rather, I just can't rely on other people it's, it's a lot of scheduling. It's really, it, it, at one point it was so impossible for me to get anybody to be willing to be on here that I almost had to double down on the co-host, no co-host thing because at a function. And then it became the real through line of this podcast. And so now I'm so happy with where it is. Um, but yeah, I, I hope to always add value and bring interesting people on. And a lot of times I'll do guests as, guests as bonus episodes, just so there's a little something for everybody. If you want to listen, great. If you want it to be just be me, great. Um, but yeah, I'm learning as I go and I am so appreciative of all the women that have been so, so incredibly supportive of me. I could drop kick all the podcast networks that told me my show was too long. I needed a co-host. That's been kind of negative, but, um, one of them especially recently came back around and was interested all of a sudden. And I, uh, had my Taylor Swift shining like fireworks over your sad empty town moment. And it was great. And that is what life is about is you know, sticking to your guns, listening to the positive feedback more than the negative, knowing you're not for everyone, being okay with attracting and repelling and getting to a place where you're so wholeheartedly aligned with what you're doing. There will be success in it, even if it's just your enjoyment in the process, because you don't even need the, the validation. You are so comfortable with its quality and what you're doing. And I think for me that that's been the biggest thing is no, learning when advice is helpful and I pivot and when it is not relevant to the thing that I'm trying to do because 
just because something doesn't exist yet doesn't mean it's not a white space you can fill. And when somebody tells you something you're doing is wrong, if you're the way you're seeing it and the feedback you're getting is largely positive, you need to ask yourself, well, am I doing it wrong or does this just look different from the way other people do it? And it's, that doesn't necessarily make it incorrect. And I felt like with the podcast, I kept having to pray that I was falling into the ladder. And again, still very small, not a huge podcast, but at the very least I can live off of it and I can have shows and have a community and have found so many kind, like-minded people that for this, this is, this adds value to. And like uh, for that, I'm just, and I mean this, like I, it blows my mind. It's so cool. Uh, I don't, I, it is not lost to me at all. I am nobody. I, uh, in, in this world where you need a celebrity to, to be a celebrity kind of, or more of a public figure to thrive in a podcast, I just, it's just not lost on me. And, um, I, I always want to share these things because, you know, per the call her daddy of it all, it's like, it's so tempting to take early offers, to take shiny offers, to, to, believe people when they say they'll be your big break. They can be the ones that make a difference. All the things you can't do yourself, we're your one-stop shop solution. If you give us a huge cut, give us ownership, give us this, give us that. And you have to ask yourself, what's worth, like if those trade-offs are worth it. Oh, this is a tall order. The next one was, a lot of people want to talk about Greg, relationships, my family. It's all more personal stuff. Okay, we'll get deep. Let's get deep. We'll get deep. Um, After these brief messages. You guys have heard me talk about Nutrafol before, and it's an interesting product in a category that I haven't had a ton of experience in, but when I tried it for the first time after hearing other women that I know endorse it, um, you know, it was kind of a tricky thing where these things take time and it took a few months, but my God, I, I love Nutrafol because I genuinely see an improvement in my hair's thickness and growth. And I really was having issues with my hair thinning um, in the past like year or two. And I just didn't really know how to feel about it. Um, and as I said before, like my, you know, tugboat is a favorite in my house. He's hypoallergenic. He doesn't shed. My hair is everywhere screaming infidelities and taking its wear. I always wonder what the people that like approve my ads think. They're like, what are you talking? Stick to the script. <laughs> but in all seriousness, <clears throat> Uh, in a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after six months. More than 1,500 top doctors recommend Nutrafol as an effective and high-quality solution for healthier hair. And thousands of women have taken back control of their hair with Nutrafol, uh, with many people raving that it not only transformed their hair, but restored their confidence in a sense, too. If uh, It's not superficial or vain to care about your appearance or your hair or whatever makes you feel like you. And I certainly wasn't feeling as much like me when I felt like my hair was falling out in chunks. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just wanted to again, share with you how I think it's a really great product and it's worked for me. And, uh, if you want to give it a try, you can grow thicker, healthier hair and support be there in five by going to neutrafol.com and using promo code be there in five and new customers will get 20% off. This is their best offer available anywhere. Plus free shipping on every order. Get 20% off at neutrafol.com spelled N U T R A F O L.com promo code be there in five. This next ad is brought to you by ButcherBox. I wish I could give you New Year's resolutions I'm making, um, but honestly, some of the improvements I made in 2020 uh, are things I plan to carry over 
one of those things is minimizing waste and minimizing grocery store trips. And I am able to do that through ButcherBox. They believe everyone deserves high quality, humanely sourced meat. It's so easy to have ButcherBox meat just show up to your door. You'll never be without something to cook for dinner. There's always meat in the freezer. It's one less trip to the grocery store and a more affordable selection too. All of the meat is free of antibiotics and added hormones. Each box is 9 to 11 pounds of meat, enough for 24 individual meals. It's packed fresh and shipped frozen and vacuum sealed, so it stays that way. You can customize your box or go with one of theirs. And uh, for Greg and I, it's just kind of become a no-brainer. He especially really cares about having grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, sugar, nitrate-free bacon. I'm sure we're not the only people that watch one too many food documentaries amidst quarantine. Um, but it's the way meat should be. And ButcherBox is the most affordable and convenient way to get healthy, humanely raised meat uh, for just around $6 per meal. And they even have free shipping nationwide except for Alaska and Hawaii. So right now, you can get two pounds of salmon absolutely free with your first box. Two pounds of salmon free with your first box. Just go to butcherbox.com slash be there in five. That's butcherbox.com slash be there in five. Okay, so people always ask a lot of relationship questions or um, about, yeah, advice for people that are single or looking for somebody or aren't and everyone's pressuring them. And people seem to think Greg is very shrouded in mystery. I'm happy to talk about him if you're interested. I don't. I do want to warn you. I'm skipping over some details because I did talk about. I did a relationship ramble that's ultimately going to be um, three parts. Two of them are on Patreon, where I go into like my dating history and all sorts of detail about Greg. That I don't know. It's just I'm not trying to withhold anything from you in exchange for money. It's just a bit of like a safe space for the smaller group. If you want to hear more details patreon.com/be-there-and-vibe, but I still, of course, want to share with you on here. Then please pardon me if, if redundant. Uh, but I do have a lot of thoughts on this, but, and I think about it a lot, just knowing um, how much I've changed over the past decade and uh, how I hate how people talk about marriage when I think it's great. Um, but also, I think that a lot of the way dating is approached is completely misguided and based off of. Thing, things that aren't true that we tell ourselves that is are totally fair because we're it's so easy to get so deeply discouraged in today's climate and I just want everybody to go a little bit easier on themselves because well, my argument this whole episode is just going to be that life is not formulaic we cannot game life and we can do the best we can in the circumstances we have and put our consistent honest effort into things so we're always moving forward but I don't want people to feel like they fall short for the things that they cannot control. And more importantly, I want people to be so, so effing proud of themselves for the things they could have and the ways they could look good to those around them based on the standards other people are, you know, will set for what progress looks like. But it is so freaking hard to say no to the things that are not right, to say no to the things that are good but not great. But yeah, I mean, and I think the other thing too, like, do, do you guys kind of feel annoyed when people gush? Is that just me? I, I like I, I, I think it's so important to hear people speak positively of their partners and stuff. And I think my tendency is to be self-deprecating and stuff because I don't want to be like, you know, the type of person that is like gushing about my spouse in an Instagram caption. And it's just so transparent that we like actually hate each other, you know, and we don't. But it's like the Jesse James Decker, Eric Decker type of uh, un, like public displays of affection and love and um, loving words that just seems like overcompensation, even though I don't want to be that negative, but like, uh, do you need a French kiss on Instagram live? I don't know. Uh, but 
beyond that, like I actually do want to make a case for marriage being great. Like just, just like I prefer, like I was born to be an adult, just like everybody told me that being, you know, college is the best days of your life. And the corporate world sucks and like stay in college while you can't be young, wild and free. Not everybody's wired to enjoy being young, wild and free. Some people prefer small groups and long talks to loud music and large parties. Some people prefer uh, structure and purpose and direction outside of the school system and the grading system. And similarly, dating was a nightmare for me (laughs) because I just... It's just something that like I really struggled with as just feeling like a person that's not very naturally like flirty and sexy and breezy. I I think that like I've processed a lot of the issues I had with dating and I just I, I if I could go back now I'd have fun with it. I'd just be lighter. I would really enjoy getting to know people. I would feel confident that it's not that he's just not that into me, it's that he's just not that right for me. I would be very mindful of what I bring to the table and would acknowledge what a numbers game dating is, what a random amalgam of things have to work out for people to be right for one another, that really all all anything in life is is a bunch of stuff that's wrong until it's right, a bunch of things that don't work out until they do. And the things that don't work out wear on you, but it's just part of the process. Uh, if everything worked out, like, why would we get married? <laughs> everything worked out like why would we stay in a job that we finally like um so much of life is the experiment where the goal isn't necessarily um the outcome but the goal is to continuously experiment of a greater understanding of ourselves and those around us to to develop a large enough volume of experiences that can help us narrow down our understanding of the world around us and and the the person that we are even if we don't ever fully figure it out. And I think with every person you meet and friendship you have and relationship you have and thing you do, you can just get a little bit closer and you have to see the value in that, even though it's hard to. And I, even though that's kind of like a toxic positivity spin on dating. Um, but like everybody I knew who eventually found their partner, it had nothing to do with like any major life change or overhaul. It had to do with a true numbers game of dating a lot of different people and realizing that a lot of different circumstances have to align for two people to work out and for being patient and confident, not taking things too personally and believing that that would eventually all come together because it does. And when it does, you wouldn't trade any of that for the world because it led you there. And I know that's like so cliche, but I really think that like there are less people are like everyone on the app sucks and you know, every guy ever sucks. I'm never going to meet anybody. And you you almost uh, unfairly identify these like patterns as like being statistical, statistical, statistically significant things and ways people will behave that you know will disappoint you. And many times it does happen. But the reality is every person is different. And every person has a different set of circumstances and needs that might be perfect for you that aren't what they seem on the surface that do take getting to know people. We're deeply flawed humans and so are other people. And there's a million reasons why some something might not work out that it's not personal to you whatsoever. And I think I wish I knew that back when I was dating. 
You just never know what about you is so endearing or perfect for somebody. I use the example on the Evermore review that it's like, I relate everything back to Taylor Swift music, but like the fact that for somebody out there, like stay, 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 is there all too well is like, like a mind blowing thing to me. Something about that song and the melody and the beat and the words and the style and whatever it is aligns with their needs in a way that makes it speak to them more than the single greatest ballad of our time. (laughs) But again, that's my subjective opinion. Um, There's a pot for every lid. There, for every reason, a million guys never liked me. A lot of those things are why Greg does. Um, And there's just no such thing as like truth or fact in that I'm, you know, you're undateable. You're unfit to be, you know, somebody's wife or husband or partner. Uh, The reality is just like with jobs, with people you work with, with friends, uh, some things are lightning in a bottle and others are just stale and stagnant. And the whole point of life is how great it is when we find those electric, uh, life-altering relationships and dynamics and chemistries with people that just are so fulfilling. And I think that we all convince ourselves that we're not always going to find that and to settle for mediocrity, which in many cases works for people. But I just think that it's it's not factual that you're never going to find it. It's not factual that the last guy that screwed you over means the next one is going to. Those those things aren't those aren't related activities. As long as you're maintaining maintaining self-reflection, self-awareness, going to therapy, whatever it is to make sure that you're cognizant of your own patterns and mistakes that you make. So you can improve, you know, the decisions you make and the people you date. Other than that, every day, every person you meet, every job you have is, you know, statistically a, a, a chance to be brand new. Taylor, are those Taylor Swift lyrics? Um, no, but I honestly just think, sorry, I switched mics. Um, I think about what I did to other people in terms of assuming they bail, assuming they cheat, assuming I couldn't trust them, assuming they had bad intentions, all these things from typecasting behavior that I had experienced. But I put myself in the shoes of the other person. And if somebody was completely misreading, misjudging, or projecting onto me, completely separate behavior that has nothing to do with me for nothing I did, I'd be so frustrated and offended. And I think, I don't know, I always try to think about that when I'm, you know, kind of almost self-sabotaging my expectations for how I assume someone will act based on something I've experienced before. Well, I get the instincts and I get the self-preservation. I also think when you flip it and imagine somebody gauging their interactions with you, not off of you at all, but off of assuming what people like you have done before, you'd be like, well, that's kind of lame. I didn't do or say any of that. (laughs) And the friends I know that were the most single for the most long of a time and had the worst dating experiences, it seemed like they would never end. It just was a factor. Like most of my friends have married awesome people they met on apps. And I know the apps are so frustrating. I'm not saying for a second, they're not exhausting. But I really do think it's more of a numbers game. And the way, you know, life works is the probability of something happening for you is contingent upon the amount of situations you are put in that allow you to meet people. 
with this year, we're not the, the, those circumstances plummet and it's scary to meet people in a pandemic. And I just think it's kind of like a year we have to strike off. Cause it just, it's like, you, no one was really living. And I know it's so frustrating, especially if you're looking for a partner and it kills me if anybody is spending too much time alone or in the holidays alone and you don't want to be alone. I don't want you to be either, but I more than that, don't want you thinking you're the problem. I think you all know if you did not want to be single, you wouldn't have to be like, there are people that you've dated throughout your life that were into you that you could have dated and married. I think a lot of people did date and marry that guy or girl. I think that honestly, I think some, some young relationships can work out. I met Greg when I was pretty young and we didn't get married till way later. Um, and some people are right from each other from the start, but I think that I just always want people to remember no matter how old you are, you're, you only have more of an advantage if you marry somebody you meet when you're a fully formed person, a confident human, when you know what you want, when you're not going out of your way to be loved, uh, as if that's something you have to carefully orchestrate behind the scenes to be worthy of somebody's affection that you have to try so hard and to pose and to be something you're not like, that's exhausting too. I think there's such a part of your twenties that is spent trying to be the person that somebody wants that you don't even sit further in who you are and realize the importance of somebody just appreciating you, you know, as you are. I just want to remind people that like holding out and being patient for the right thing and all the times you didn't date or marry the wrong guy is incredibly impressive and incredibly hard to do. And a lot of people don't hedge their bets on themselves and just marry the wrong guy and then live a life being stuck wondering about, their own potential, wondering if they could find a greater love or somebody who appreciated them more. And I don't want that for anybody. And it's a funny thing where I think people give, you know, whether you want to be proposed to and haven't been yet, the sad eyes or people always ask people if they're single and they assume you want to be with somebody and maybe you don't. And that's awesome too. But what's so weird to me about the sad eyes is when I hear people are single, I'm like, damn, you can live wherever you want. You can work wherever you want. You can travel and see people whenever you want. You, you ha- all of your money is to yourself. Uh, you have the independence so many people that are tethered to many things dream of that if you can enjoy taking advantage of that while you can and insert yourself in chances where there's a high probability of meeting different types of people, if only for friendships, if only for good stories, who the hell cares? I hope you're able to find some sort of joy or contentment in the process, even though I know it's torturous and I know I don't understand it because I haven't really been through it. But the way I see it, when I hear people are single, I'm like, wow, are you so glad you didn't marry your college boyfriend? Like, are you so glad you didn't marry that shitty guy that cheated on you? Like, I kind of see it as the opposite. I'm like, what a, what a gift to meet your spouse as a fully formed, confident human. It's hard to hit pause and take inventory of your life and say, this isn't right for me. It's hard to walk away from something that's comfortable. It's excruciating to end a partnership and friendship and relationship that is good enough, but it's not great. Because I think as humans, we can tolerate good enough. But I just don't think life's meant to be tolerated. I think that the right people can add an incredible amount of value to your life. You guys know what I mean. It's like some people you just love and want to be around all the time. And, you know, and, and I don't even know why. Um, other than the way they make me feel. And I think, I guess that going back to the original question, sorry for rambling. Um, I think that 
you know, when I met Greg, I met him in a country Western bar um, in New York City, like really late at night. He said something in passing uh, to a friend and I, you know, we went and got pizza. The whole story I've told, I feel like too many times and it's on the recent Patreon relationship rambles if you want to hear it. And also, so is my dating history. I mean, everything. If I'm trying not to go into too much detail, just not to not be redundant. And I'm not withholding you guys from detail for Patreon, but quite literally, I did like four hours of this already. So I don't want... Uh, for those of you that listened to both to hear it again, but, um, yeah, I mean, he was like a st- random chance meeting for absolutely no reason. I, a complete stranger, no mutual friends. There is that we would have never on this planet probably run into each other again, but I was standing in a particular place in a particular bar and he happened to walk by. And that's such a mind F for me when I think about how drastically my life changed after I met him. And that's why I think of, you know, in my uh, unhelpful rose-colored retrospect, I think of how crazy it is. Like, in a you know, especially normal world when we're living, it's like, wow, every day is a chance that like your chance moment could happen, and you just never know. And I think when it does, it's like you're single until you're not. And now it's like all the, the all those times I agonized and all the journals I filled with my misery about boys. It's just like, oh man, yeah, it's fine, it's whatever. You like forget about it. It's so crazy. Because Greg didn't know that I had been friend zoned, that people made me feel bad about myself, that I felt ugly and unworthy and too pressured and cheated on. And he didn't know any of that. Like, and he didn't need to. He, he, he gauged who I was from our interactions alone. And then it was through that process I realized I'm only who I say I am and how I act. And nothing that ever had happened to me before had to translate into this relationship. As far as he knew, I was the coolest girl around, the sexiest girl around. As far as he knew, I was hot and fun. I wasn't. (laughs) Just think back on meeting him. And I was at a place in my life where I was so fed up. I just found, I was just, I had been dating a guy in New York and I found uh, in his jacket pocket, like literally the woman in love, actually, I found jewelry in his interior coat pocket. No, I found, sorry, a David Yerman receipt in his interior coat pocket for jewelry I did not get. And I met Greg shortly after and none of it has to do with any of it other than chance. And the biggest difference for me was not only did I just fundamentally like being around Greg and I do feel like I have a natural magnet that is drawn to him. I just like being in his presence. Um, he made me feel like wholly unequivocally myself. I don't feel like myself around a lot of people. I, I feel exhausted at times trying to be a likable version of myself. Um, I don't mean that in a way that I'm fake. I mean that in a way that I read and absorb people's energy to a degree and I want them to be comfortable. So I'll kind of morph myself to optimize their comfort because I want people to want to be around me, right? And um, I don't know. I He's smart and he's humble and he's warm and handsome and he seeks out the truth and puts effort into things. And he was the one of the first people I'd met in New York who asked me out on like a date date and wouldn't just text me at night he didn't have five drinks at dinner he didn't have any drinks at dinner which i thought was so weird because i was mentally preparing to have roughly four until i felt comfortable he like would kiss me hello and goodbye and i was like what sober i'm not i'm not used to being kissed until you know salt shakers playing on the dance floor um <laughs> but not really I, I really only had like, I just feel like so many college inter- physical interactions are always involved drinking and stuff. And I was almost uncomfortable kissing someone sober, which is weird to say. 
I mean, guys, he had furniture and taste. He owned a peacoat. He doesn't black out. He, he would never punch somebody at a bar. I'm the one who accosted a grown man at a bar who made fun of his sweater and called him Mr. Rogers. And then I verbally assaulted the guy about his Arab pastel shirt and his cargo pants. And uh, this is why I keep a lot of things with Craig private. If anybody talked about him or said anything and it, for something he didn't really necessarily sign up for and something he didn't really do, like people talk about people's husbands, like looks and stuff. And I'm just like, I would drop, I would digitally drop kick you somehow. Like I would be furious. I, I, I have a very long fuse with myself, but not for people I care about. And that's why sometimes I do this at arm's distance because the things people say about me are mean enough. But if it was about somebody I cared about, I'm no. Uh, but yeah, I freaked out on a guy at a bar. I don't think it was my shining moment, but Greg did bring it up in my wedding speech. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. It's just interesting to look back on and like, what was different? I mean, you know, he, the craziest thing of all is like, he'd respond to my texts. He, he, we've been on three dates when Valentine's day came around. And I, unlike every other guy that was like, oh, don't <laughs> girls are crazy. You can't ask him out on Valentine's day. They all got the wrong idea. He asked me out on a date. He was like, it's Valentine's Day. Do you want to go out? And I told him I liked rom-com. So he took me to see the movie Valentine's Day on Valentine's Day. And even though it does star one Taylor Swift, it is one of the worst films of all time. But it was really nice of him to do something cheesy and stupid with me just because I, I liked it. And then I went back to his apartment for the first time and Chat Roulette was really popular. And we ch we saw the Jonas Brothers for, for real. It was very exciting. We also ate Taco Bell, which in Manhattan is what you do. You know, you picked me up from the airport. When I moved to Chicago, I was with family trying on bridesmaid dresses for somebody's wedding. He sent us pizza afterward. When he met my dad, he brought him his favorite things, pork rinds and Mountain Dew. Um, he, I, I don't know. I think it's kind of crazy when I look back and that we never actually broke up when we met when we were so young because we weren't, we did not meet with the intention to get married. Oh, when you're young and you're dating, you aren't always looking for your husband or wife, or at least I, that wasn't necessarily you're looking for high quality people who can fill your days. And the thing is, he's very reserved and quiet and not like a super social fun Bobby type that is really obvious up front. And I think that as I talked about in Patreon, sometimes people don't get to know him very well. And I think people really judge people by their cursory social interactions, but not everybody needs to be the show pony. And a lot of people want the show pony. A lot of people want the person that everyone's friends and parents are going to freak out and glow about because they're so fun in life, the party. I couldn't be married to that person. I want, I want a smart and kind and quietly confident guy. Like I like a person, like I, I spend so much time working and researching and just having fun doing my own hobbies and my own hobbies are filling my days with the things that people aren't things normal people really understand or respect. Like I don't, tr I try not to feel guilty if I find joy in diving into anything. I, my hobby is the acquisition of knowledge because I think it enriches my life and stimulates my brain, but it also helps me relate to more people. It helps me with this job. It helps me have more to talk about and at social functions. And Greg and I both read and research and like participate in a lot of media. And like, we both like to do the same things. And like, we don't, we're really of okay being home. We really have a lot of fun together. And if we wanted to be really reclusive, we could be, but in recent years, we've been better about socializing, but he is the type of person that is perfect for me. There's no such thing as being the perfect person, but everyone else has their different preferences. And you could have looked at me like a vapid sorority girl who like wants 
to, you know, have the latest 6-2 SIG up with a beer stain, a chapstick mouth, and a swoopy bang uh, as their partner, you know, who is like the town mayor and spends a lot of time pounding beers and playing golf at the country club and blah, blah, blah. But like, I don't want that guy. But, you know, so like he could have assumed I wouldn't have been interested in more of his type, but I was. But I hadn't met anybody like him before, so I didn't know that's what I wanted to ask for. And we would have never swiped for each other on dating apps. I am not his physical type at all. Um, and I think that, too, is just like chemistry overrides everything. And that's what you kind of lose when you can't always meet. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think there's part of it, too, is like he's not an open book. And after, you know, almost like 10 years total, we've only been married for three. I'm still rifling through the pages wanting to know more. Um, I think that I weirdly, I don't want to call it a chase, but I love a deep dive and I think I'll always be fascinated by him. And I, and that's something I really enjoy. I love the layers. Um, I just think that the other piece too, is I tend to surround myself with very supportive and nurturing, you know, I'm a youngest child, maybe borderline coddling people and I think the reason I am who I am is because of them and their reassurance and all they've done for me in my life. What I do really like Greg is he doesn't indulge me in my neuroses. And I, in the beginning of our uh, relationship, I used to kind of misinterpret him as being devil's advocate or unsupportive or contrarian, which he can be, and mind you, so can I. But he makes me think harder and he makes me think of the other side. And he's really who pushed me into the gray He's the one who's really always reminding me, like, everybody thinks they're the good guy. Instead of chastising people for their behavior, think through why they think they're the one doing the right thing. And that's how you can actually understand people. And I think that my life and career kind of took off when I was with him, not because we didn't have our problems, which I do talk about on the Patreon, because we're very different. But I think in meeting somebody so different from me, who had such a different perspective, and even though people didn't always understand it, um, he's the one that kind of pushed me to live out my potential. While I give myself full credit for my own career, I think that all of the people I had already known were always giving me more so advice that like looked out for me and didn't want me to get hurt. So I wasn't really pushed to take as many risks and chances. And But he was very adamant about like, I think you're better at this than other people. I think you'd be good at this. I think you should do this. I think you should go for it. And I think having that sort of support in your corner in such an in your immediate life uh, of a person who's not indulging you in the things that you're worrying about that aren't real issues, um, he kind of helps me snap out of it. And while sometimes I just want the support and I don't want the solving, and I think that's a big problem between women and men, uh, I think it largely was the right compliment to my personality because I do think I could there's a lot I could do and there's so many, I'm so ambitious, but I'm deeply self-conscious. And even though I don't rely on him really for advice anymore, cause he's not my target demographic. I mean, I bring up important stuff to him, of course, but just, I mean, topically, I don't think he understands like why I could talk about Turtle Creek Lane for two hours, which is fine. I don't, that's not really what I need to relate to my husband about. Um, at the beginning, he was really essential and kind of helping me snap out of it and realize I could do more. And again, we are not without our problems at all, but I think, in general, we have a pretty relaxed, easy relationship that doesn't require a ton of thought on my part. And if you guys know me, you know, I think overthink everything. And that was one of maybe the biggest lessons for me is I couldn't always make sense of how we worked. 
because we're so different. And I couldn't really understand why he liked me as much as he did because nobody else ever did. Um, and I could have overthought and intellectualized the situation all I wanted to make it make sense or to think through all the different scenarios of how we'd work and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, I love how he makes me feel. And I feel good and I feel like myself and I feel capable. And um, I, you know, he taught me to be more patient and to stand up for myself, but to ask more questions, to always see the other side. The most important thing is that he's ever taught me is to wait to complain until after my food has been served. Um, but I think that the most important thing for me is, yeah, I, I really have always, up until that point in my life, I always felt I was kind of molding myself into whoever I needed to be to meet the group I was in so they would like me. And I was, you know, okay, I got to be polite and put together and friendly, but funny and tough, but not bitchy and this and that. And I really overthought my behavior so much to the point that I don't even know if until my 20s, I necessarily knew who I was outside of like a pen and paper because I tried so hard to be somebody I wasn't to offset just not feeling cool. Um, and I just am grateful to come home and not have to fake an ounce of my being. I don't have to pretend to cook or be more cultured than what I saw in Daily Mail. I can just exist. And I think that's such a thing that I didn't even know what to look for. But I think it's a very real thing a lot of people have to do, per se, Taylor Swift's song, Tolerated, is to, when you're in a relationship with like a, a power imbalance, and the more one person tries, the more the other pushes away. It's a nightmarish situation that I've felt many times where I always felt confused. Like the more effort I put in, the more I love somebody, the, the less I get in return. It just, it's, it's so wrong and imbalanced. And I would overthink and kind of calculate my every move to try to, you know, figure out the equals MC square of how I can regain back the power can skew 51% in my favor. And then the other person will long for me. I quite literally, those are games and I'm not, we had some like, uh, you know, there were definitely ebbs and flows at the beginning and we weren't that serious at the beginning, but I mean, the other, the other thing too, is like, I'm not an easy partner either. And I think sometimes we forget too. we need to find people who appreciate us for who we are. Sure. But we have a lot of work to do. And I did a lot of work. Uh, throughout my relationship that I talked about in that other relationship ramble episode where I was so unfair to him in so many ways of my expectations when we started because I was modeling what I thought a boyfriend should be like off of the my toxic friends relationships that are no longer together and I'm so glad he was patient with me through that but he was older than me and um, a little more mature and had been in more relationships and like was working on his life and career and I just took everything so personally and my friends would give me such bad advice about if he's doing anything but making you the number one priority and bending over backwards, then he's not the guy for you. But he'd be like studying for the GMAT instead of going out on St. Patrick's Day. And I remember people being like, I don't know if he loved you. Don't you think he'd show up? But like, I don't know if I loved him. Wouldn't I uh, want him to work towards something he really wants and allow him to study so he can get into grad school? I think we th we have to be mindful of Somebody meeting our needs, yes, but making sure that we are equally reciprocating to theirs 
and that for maybe for a second, we realize we ourselves are not perfect. And the erratic roller coaster I've taken him on with my career, my emotions, mental health, my decisions throughout the past decade, he is never flustered. He is so calm. He's most of the time supportive, though there have been a few times where he's like, eh. I think our hardest period of time is probably right around it when I started this. I walked away from my corporate job. I had to stop doing the mats full time. It was eating away at my soul. I was getting rampantly copied and I made myself obsolete through the line of production. And then I wasn't getting other jobs. And my only job opportunities was to ramp up this business I had already built that people kind of glamorize as this entrepreneurial dream. But I, I was miserable. I didn't want to own and scale up a rug empire to make, make money. So I had no other way to make money. And that's when I was at my lowest and you get back to basics. And that's when I wrote my book. That's when I started this podcast. That's when I said, what have I loved my whole life? What am I, what have I always been doing that no one else is doing? Uh, writing a poem about Instagram, <laughs> making up that nursery rhyme characters have a feed called once upon a timeline or having a long form rambly single hosted podcast like Joe Rogan. But imagine if it's a woman, imagine if I talk about all the things people make fun of me for liking and I find people who take great pride in them. That's what I mean by the things I was always doing that nobody else was. That's how I tried to find a niche. And for a good two years, while I made money on the podcast, it was nowhere close to what I used to make. And just this year is finally when this is like a serious full-time gig that requires a lot of different people and things and moving parts. And I have representation and um, it's been really exciting. And I always felt in my gut it would get there. And while I think at times I was like that husband and eat, pray, love, that's like, I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a lawyer. I want to help the children. And it's so unattractive to have somebody kind of flounder to that degree, right? Um, I'm grateful. You know, it's, it's good to be loved. It's profound to be understood. I think he really understood that I believed I was building. I wanted to sink time and sweat equity into building something that was wholly mine and um, that I felt I could do it. And while I'm not opposed to giving up and I've given up on most of the things I've tried, I just think it's really cool that despite not really caring about Instagram or social media, despite the fact that I block him from my stories, so he's not like, why do, do you think people really care about that? Because yes, they do. They do. Um, despite the fact that I cringe when he listens to this, and he does sometimes, but I ask him not to because there's like a freedom for me in being able to talk without the noise or feedback of people, what I know people I know will say. Because if I account for that, I'm not necessarily being honest. I don't want to talk to you guys as a filtered version of myself. I want to talk to you guys about what I really think and feel. And sometimes that is at the expense of knowing people that know me are going to hear it. Um, but yeah, I just all that to say, he's wonderful. He's a big part of why this is successful. And me leaving him out of it has so little to do with me not wanting him to be a part of all facets of my life and so much with me wanting to preserve that part of my life. I could get canceled. I could get taken down by the internet, but I could go home and nothing will have changed. And he doesn't know that. He doesn't need to be mired in it. That can be my soft place to land. And that's important to me. And per a lot of the things and topics I've talked about today, a big part of like my, why I had trouble when I was younger is because I'm, I've talked about being an HSP, a highly sensitive person, like 20% of the population is. It is so real. And I always felt like I got hit harder than other people. I felt more intensely. I always felt like, 
I was so melancholic and blue and my disappointments were greater and I was dragged down by things more easily and the molding myself to who people needed me to be is, is that too. It's like, I can't handle the thought of not being what people need me to be. So I'll forego elements of myself to make you comfortable because it's easier for me to almost like it's this anticipatory knowledge of if something happens, I will be in pain and it will be hard for me to get over. So let me do everything in my power to present my sensitive self from, from getting hurt, from feeling rejected, from feeling left out. And then you kind of start to manipulate your life. So people like you. So, but then at the, all of a sudden you look around, you're like, who am I? What, what am I? Um, and that's kind of where I felt I was at the end of my college experience. And to go into a next question, somebody asked me, and also I, I answered like 12 questions within that Greg one. I hope that helps. Like what's his involvement with your business? Why do you block him? Why do you, what do you like about him? how do you meet? Like all that stuff. The next piece somebody asked is um, from the Facebook group. I always ask because I'm in an area where everyone's a transplant. What has changed since you moved away from your hometown? Beliefs, ideas, anything at all? You know, it's interesting because I talk about how drastically I've changed. Yeah. And um, I don't think it has as much to do with my hometown because the people I'm friends with from home actually are really interesting, dynamic women that have moved all over and done different things and are the farthest thing from narrow-minded. And also, Short Pump is a ridiculous sounding name but it's like a bougie suburb. It's like, um, you know, I know it sounds very suds in the bucket clothes laying out on the line, but it, it's, it's, it's not big, but you know, it's still, it's technically in the South, but it's not, uh, I I wouldn't say it's like crazily conservative. Um, it's not rural. It's not like, I think people might think it's a smaller town than it is. Um, but it just kind of is like a normal all American suburb. And I think that the changes I endured had so little to do with where I was from and the people I knew and everything to do with my own self-image that had formed like as a result. And I think I, I needed a clean slate and I needed to be pulled from my environment to really develop a sense of self and to, to develop a sense of confidence. It's hard to be confident when who you are is just trying to be who everybody wants you to be. And then it's hard when you feel rejected when people wouldn't date me, when I felt like all my friends were cooler and smarter and prettier than I was and so accomplished and everyone just had all these bright futures ahead, yet I was having like a manic depressive episode because I was on the birth control. Yes. This is bad. I really should have participated in that class action lawsuit. I'm going to tie two questions together because one person asked about moving away from my hometown. And then one person said, what advice would you give yourself in high school and middle school or like your younger self? Um, because these, I think these kind of tie in, uh, because one of the biggest lessons I learned is similar to what I said earlier, you don't have to have the time of your life when everybody else is. And I really did not understand in college that I wasn't doomed because I didn't love to go to frat parties and rage and hook up with tons of guys and go to football games and whatever. It just, it wasn't the optimal place for my personality. And it's confusing when society tells you something is fun and you're not having fun, you think something's wrong with you. And then when everybody's like, never leave, these are the best days of your life. And you look ahead and you're like, this is the best. And I'm having one of the hardest times in my life. Like it's pretty, pretty bleak outlook. If you ask me, but what I learned as I went into the, I moved away and got into the adult world um, when I was walking down New York City streets, 
you know, utterly anonymous with my headphones in, listening to probably Empire State of Mind or like Arcade Fire. I would like look up at the Chrysler building walking down Lex on the street where I lived and just be like, this is my football game. What everybody else felt in college, I should have honored that and been more respectful, not think, thought they were like shallow and, you know, thought I was so like interesting and different because I didn't like to rage as much as they did. That, that was the best circumstance for them. That's where they were thriving. And I was thriving, listening to music, walking by myself deep in thought in my main character moment in New York. I never lived in a city. I didn't know that's what I wanted. You don't know what you want until you experience it and gauge for yourself if it's right or wrong. And I don't know how I got plucked from obscurity and got this job in New York City when I graduated college that I wasn't qualified for. But one of the lessons I would tell my younger self has something to do with it, which is resumes get you in the door and your qualifications are so important, but your personality can keep you there. Your interpersonal skills can make all the difference. What I lacked in A's, I made up for in conversational skills and I was shocked when I kept going through interviews and I realized I could be charming. I could relate to people. I was empathetic. I was so aware of people's energy and vibe that I was able to kind of almost, no matter who I, I went through so many rounds of interviews, really tough people, high executives, uh, more entry level people that were in the programs. And I felt like I did so well because I have an EQ where I was missing more of an IQ. And I've told, told this story, you know, in the Nora podcast, but literally my final interview in New York with these like head honchos, we all cried. And I think it was just this huge, cause they asked me about the Virginia tech, um, shooting that I had lived through that was very defining of my college experience. And then they told me about their trauma with nine 11 and we had a human moment that, and we connected and being able to connect with people is a skill. And people call them soft skills, but I think it's the farthest from the truth because it's hard for people that aren't able to, there's many downfalls to how much I want to balance and control the energy of a room. And sometimes it's selfishly just so, you know, I don't feel like I'm being rejected, but oftentimes it's, I just really do like for other people to be comfortable. I really do want other people to feel important and listened to and those are things about my personality that the, you know, the, the grading system or the social structures in college don't really reward. I feel embarrassed that I corner people at parties and do, you know, have hard hearts. <laughs> I think all the guys I dated became my friend because that's what we, I would really get to know them. And like, it wasn't physical and surface and I just never was good at that. Um, but I think I got this really incredible job because they thought I'd be good with clients and they thought I'd be good at presenting. And I, I met somebody at a career fair that um, did my same study abroad program. And she, I like watched her like kind of glance at my resume. I think make sure my GPA was good enough to like make, make the cut. And then she like put me at the top of the pile. Cause she was like, I think you, I think you'd be really good at this. I think you have something. I think you're interesting. I have similar experience to you. And we did similar stuff in college and we worked with the same professor so yeah, I'll, I'll recommend you. And after that, they didn't really look at my resume that much. It's really crazy when I think about it. And I honestly, and I feel like I'm being weird and gushing and bragging, and I'm really not trying to do that. But I want to tell you the lessons I've learned because I think so often it's not stuff I would change that I would tell my younger self. It would be to embrace more of who I was and to stop spending so much time wishing away my worst qualities or wishing I could be somebody else and just trying to find my strengths. And I think that Instead of remembering that our life phases and environments don't always lend themselves to our strengths, 
we convince ourselves that we're weird and we're the problem. But I really think if you're patient, you know, you'll real your your time is coming. Uh, the things that made me feel weird and rejected and isolated in my youth are the things that made me adapt really well to being an adult. So you might not be the most fun sorority girl, but you'll be a, a you know a hell of an attorney. You might not be you know enjoy uh, grad school that much, but you might like thrive in motherhood. You might you just never know how you'll react and perform in the context you're in until you're there. And I just think it's so important to always see things from the perspective of you'll find better days. I think a lot of the, it's almost college and high school. So this aspect of like almost Americana that puts a lot of pressure on like what it needs to be, but doesn't need to be anything other than, you know, a stair step, a means to an end, a place to get you where you're going. You can appreciate it for what it is. The pressure to have something be the time of your life is utterly ridiculous. Oh, that's kind of what I, the train of thought I got on earlier that I forgot is wanting to tell people, I like being married. I really like it. It's great. And for all the people that say the old ball and chain, you'll never sleep together again. It's, you get really tired of each other. You know, it's, uh, it's work. It's hard. One of the hardest jobs in the world. I mean, and I get all that. And I'm sure I'll feel that way when I have kids. And I know people love to minimize the opinions of people that don't have kids. Um, but I've, we've been together for, for a very long time. And it's really enriched my life and far more than it's ever held it back. And for that, I'm incredibly grateful. And I don't want people to think that it has to be in, a, you know, drudging through the trenches at all times together. I really do think the right people add an incredible amount of value to your life. And that the people, you know, just like the people that scare me out of motherhood by only talking about how much they have to drink and how they're held hostage in their home and they get trained you know, tr- pranked on TikTok that they can go to Target and they like, lose their minds. I'm like, what? The, the, the people that make it seem like when you have a kid, your husband sucks, you're doing all the work and you're exasperated all the time. Like that, I see enough of that and I convince myself it's the truth. And if I were single or, or you know, dating or engaged or whatever and feeling unsure about marriage and I saw people constantly being like, ugh, it's work, it's work. Just know it's work. Enjoy it while you're dating. The beginning of your if the beginning of your relationship is not the best part, then you've got your answer. Um, like yes, life does get more complicated, and yes, it should be fairly breezy at the beginning. But also, life and people are complicated, and there could be a lot of issues with timing and um, location and whatever. And I just think there's just no there's no truth to any of that. There's no formula. No two situations are the same. And you can you have to judge your relationship, or your job, or whatever it is based off of your own data. <laughs> um, and I think that people make marriage seem like a real drag. When I think, I don't know, I like to hope we'll continue to love and respect one another and appreciate each other in different ways more over time. And um, I just don't want anyone anybody to feel like marriage is a death wish for their relationship still being exciting because it, it certainly does not have to be. And I lived with him before he got married, and a lot of people said, well, that takes something special away. No, it doesn't. It does not. How dare anybody ever tell you that your decisions to do all your due diligence and to n- know everything you want to know about a person to be comfortable enough to tether yourself to them for life. How dare anybody tell you that that's going to take magic or interest away from your relationship? How dare anybody ever tell anybody why buy the cow? 
You're not a cow. You're not livestock. You're not Taza's you know, cow in her Arizona suburban backyard cul-de-sac to get tax breaks. You're a human person who is 50% of a partnership. And all the tropes about well, men do this and women do this and you can't give it all away or you can't, you have to leave a little mystery or you need to make sure that uh, when you're married, something tangibly changes or else it'll be just like you're dating and then you can break up easily. Would you ever consider that if you live together and you're dating, you can by law break up very easily, but when you don't anyway, that says something? It's, uh, it's just as easy to say that living together makes people slide into marriage and not and stay together for too long because the stakes are too high. It's just as easy to say that, well, there's actually no technical legal stakes and you could leave at any time anyway. So dating and living together is actually great because it gives you options and gives you an out before you truly don't have one. It could go either way. And there's just a lot, there's so many things that make a relationship work or not work. And it's hard to predict the future. And many aspects of life is a gamble when we're dealing with other people um, who we don't have control over and their own personal evolution that uh, things happen to them over time that we can't predict or control and you just never know where you'll end up. But you can do the best you can with the information you have and the life you want to live based on the way the person makes you feel and respects you and the way they fit into your life and um, hope for the best. And I just don't want everyone to think it's damned or doomed or miserable or that the people that tell them that living together are not being engaged over after a certain number of years or uh, that after you have kids, it's this, like there is no truth. Everyone's experience is different and you can do things your way and your way doesn't have to be miserable and never, ever let anybody tell you that what happened to them will most certainly happen to you while you can take their well-intentioned advice. Those two circumstances are not the same. Uh, what am I talking about? I've told you guys before, I'll tell you, I, it's so hard. I never want to be redundant, but I think that's the thing about life lessons and principles. It's that the ones that matter, the ones that stick with you and don't really change. And um, if uh, the repetition helps with the reinforcement, like I think, oh no, I talked about this in my live show. Um, I, my mom has said so much of like my, the things I've like done in my life. And when I go home and go through them, it cracks me up and it gives me so much material for this podcast. Uh, because what's so remarkable about the pile of artifacts relative to my now career that I think people think is like, you know, daring or different or, or, you know, prominent in some way, just because it's public facing when like the joke is, it's not a function of me thinking I'm that great. It's the opposite. It's, it's a function of pure unadulterated comfort with mediocrity. Because when I go through my pile of life artifacts, it's not my penchant for overachieving that impresses me. It's the it's a real who's who of B's and C's, of abysmal math tests, of of teachers commenting on my run-on sentences, shocking, of sports and activities I tried for a hot minute, but then I was probably like too hot and I don't like to be outside. I, my mom saved a fifth place ribbon from a five-person swim race, a cheerleading squad picture from the one year I cheered, but I'm not even in the team photo because I think I was sick. I probably just, I probably just was feeling off that day. Uh, programs from one piano recital, a brief passionate affair with gymnastics following the true influencers of my life, you know, the Fab 11 from the 96 Olympics. Not to mention the infamous award I got at camp for being good at nothing, which was most Christ-like at water skiing. <laughs> I'm slightly obsessed with reflecting on periods of my life when I didn't know who I was. Because I think the absence of an agenda in my youth made me operate from 
a true north that I always find myself going back to when I grow weary of, of taking others' directions. And when I look at these things, I think I'm really taken by them because it has nothing to do with their notability uh, in any objective sense and everything to do with their lack of. I I always walked into awards assemblies where I wouldn't get recognized. I tried out for teams I'd assume I probably wouldn't make. And I'm not telling you this is like a sob story or a VH1 behind the music of like, I was bad at everything and I made it against the odds. No, I'm telling you I was okay at everything. I was just like, fine. I just existed. Like I just, I didn't need to be the top of the class. I didn't need to be a straight A student. I didn't need, I mean, I wanted to be the hottest girl, but I wasn't. Um, but the way I felt I was treated at home made up for any deficit I felt at school. And when I go through my memory boxes, I always think about this because like, when I'm interviewed and people ask me about my success, it's like there's this expectation that people whose paths are unique or entrepreneurial, they must possess this like prodigious prequel of a life that that commencement speeches are made of. And their adolescence is marked with genius and teachers who always knew they were different. But for me, I really feel like it's the opposite. I do not think I'm successful because I'm the best. I think I'm successful because I'm okay with not being the best. When you don't need an A and you don't need a first place ribbon, and when the people that love you praise effort, not excellence, you have a freedom to try things and then stick with them or walk away. You you have the freedom to find success in different areas because you can start and stop and resume and rinse and repeat many things all the time. And then a few inevitably turn into something worth pursuing. And I think people want to attribute people they perceive as successful to a complex series of personality traits. But for me, it actually boils down to me not being embarrassed to try new things. And when I look back on my career, everything I've done is objectively embarrassing. I started a doormat business. I tried to get a poem published about Instagram. I nominated myself as interesting enough to start a podcast, even when everyone has a podcast, even though everyone has podcasts now, mostly have to be celebrities to even make them work. I share high volumes of thoughts on pop culture every day as a wannabe influencer about things that people make so much fun of people for caring about. These are things that people don't get. These are things that you need a proof of concept for. It's like crazy to me that I'm even like crying into this mic about things that like I don't even know if people want to hear. But that's kind of the nature, the nature of it is, is I've developed a level of tolerance to accepting that I will do things without a known reaction and it has to be okay because most more often than not, it's not going to be great, but it might be good enough for some people. And I need to just let go that I can't be everything to anyone that I can't rely on third party metrics of success because even they themselves are subjective to a degree. I think that I, I've always felt that when I've tried to give people advice, it's really confusing that I'm a super sensitive and self-conscious person that cares so much what people think, but also could not care less what people think of my professional decisions while I'm making them. But I do think that some people are bred to feed off of an external feedback loop and grades and scholastic accomplishments tell you exactly where you stand against your peers. Uh, Nothing about school for me, was mired in a level of greatness that felt defining for me, that I really put a ton of stock into, my self-worth based on it. And 
I always felt like I kind of made the call about who I felt I was outside of those things. How I felt about myself is where I stood. How the people that were around me felt about who I was is where I stood. And I think it inadvertently created a trusting of my gut, a confidence in my creativity, and a risk-taking mentality that all thrive in the absence of a need for external validation. And even though I love reassurance, like almost problematically so, my ego needs it. My heart of hearts thrives without it. And everything I've done, I've, I've ever been proud of. I've done on my own and I've not told anybody about because I've learned to work around the ego. I've worked work around the shortcomings of my personality. I think like Nora McInerney always says, embrace the and. Like I've, I, I'm, a, I'm a walking state of hypocrisy in almost everything because I think there's a real important disconnect to recognize between our superficial needs and our physiological ones between our gut and intuition and our ego uh those things can want very different things and need different things on different days and they're all valid but i while needing your favor and feedback and your patreon membership or your solid review or you to tag me in your story like i need and thrive and almost like subsist off of that so often for this job because it's it's almost it's too up in the air sometimes it's it feels too risky the things i'm saying uh in the absence of knowing how you'll feel about them i also wouldn't do them if i didn't to a degree feel deeply confident that it was the right thing to be doing and i think that that's just a confusing thing to tell people that i feel two ways about stuff but i do feel like the important through line is that you prioritize your gut and your intuition over your superficial needs because i think we can have our feelings hurt and be like, everybody hates me and have those days, but you still also kind of know they don't, right? And that's how I feel about my job. There are most days I'm like so tired of myself. I don't think I'm funny. I don't think I'm interesting. And if I were the person on the other side of the screen or headphones, I'd be rolling my eyes because the nature of this work is very self-involved and gratuitous. Uh, and part of that's true. But I also know that for every one of those, I hope there's five people who need to be kept company, who need to be entertained, who uh, enjoy something about the cadence of how I talk or wanna dive into topics that their friends make them feel stupid for caring about. Um, podcasts kept me warm at a time in my life where I was deeply depressed and I will always feel a level of service to being a built-in friend you don't have to call and don't have to reach out to but shows up anyway um and i, t I say these god this i just like i'm embarrassed um i think that i share all this not to like toot my own horn but especially because a lot of you have kids and i'm sure you're always trying to figure out the best way to navigate things is life is so complicated uh but I get emotional when I talk about my life and my family because I am so lucky and I don't want to brag. Uh, but I think it's because the things I can never really describe on interviews is like my nature is to want to do well and my nature is to want to try hard. Um, I, I want to do good things and be great at things and to help people and to feel like I have purpose and to feel understood just like anybody else does. Um... But I don't think I'm successful because I'm good at everything. I think I'm successful because I'm not afraid or embarrassed to be bad at anything. 
And I remember when I got to college, I watched so many people have panic attacks about create grades and job interviews and contest every question that they got wrong and the most innocuous of, of assignments because they had to be perfect and they had to be right. And even though I felt like an imposter most of my adult life, uh, when I've had career luck, I think it's, you know, while I am super ambitious and I am super hardworking and committed to as m much of a degree of excellence as I can perform with what I've got and the time I'm given, I am super okay with Bs. <laughs> and I sometimes I wonder, since I could never really ground my self-worth in grades, if I was forced to find it elsewhere. Um, I, I think that Bs are ironically what have allowed me to just be to be there in five, if you will. And sometimes I worry about kids who are intelligent in ways the school system doesn't adequately reflect, that it can take a detrimental toll on their self-worth and prevent them from exploring their gifts. Um, because I'd argue that even though I wasn't the top of my class, I think I was better equipped for adulthood in life than any A student because life doesn't have a syllabus or a study guide or a linear grading system that tells you exactly where you stand. And I think you have to be okay with being enough as you are because of who you are and what you bring to the table, your amazing personality and your incredible gifts that God has given you that even on your darker days, when you deny their existence, deep down, you know, they're there. I think we have to be able to acknowledge that we are enough in the absence of a unit of measurement that can reassure us that we are enough. Because this is the thing with adults and kids alike that I think I, that I don't know the answer to, but I always wish we could teach that confidence. It's, it's just, it isn't your self-worth relative to others. It's a belief and respect for yourself despite the influence of others. There's so much chatter and people get so frustrated with participation trophies and you know, arguing for a more even playing field so there are more attainable standards. But I guess my argument isn't for the standards themselves, rather encouraging young people to not abide by any sort of standard uh, when it comes to where they get their self-esteem. I, I think confidence is a fine line between a comparison and an observation. Um, whether, you know... It's you're a young child and you're comparing to yourself to somebody in your math class or you get older and you're comparing yourself to some influencer or model. I want people to be able to observe other strengths without discounting their own. I don't want my future son or daughter to think their opinion of themselves should be contingent upon how pretty or smart their peers are, how, you know, uh, attainable the standard to which they're held at their particular institution, college, job, or whatever is. You're enough as you are. You're worthy as you are. And you're, whatever point in life you're in, it might not always lend itself perfectly to your strengths. And you're not going to be the best at everything, but that's okay. Your time will come. And other people can be celebrated when they're thriving, just as you are entitled to allow yourself to sit in when you're struggling and say, this is hard. This is bad. I look forward to a time when this things won't be this way because they won't be forever. I think we have to honor where we are and where other people are. And instead of uh, uh, imagine ourselves to be falling short of something, 
at each and every phase by a standard somebody else set to figure out a way to acknowledge that we're not in control of everything and not everything is going to meet our specific needs. But what matters is moving forward and what matters is honest effort and what matters is like, I just, I, I know I say this all the time, but I really, really think about how, you know, five, 10 years ago, I would not want 23-year-old Kate making 33-year-old Kate's decisions. I do not want current me making future me's decisions. And I need to just be okay with finding joy in the process and allowing things to evolve as long as I'm putting my honest effort and working as closely toward where I think I want to be going, but remaining flexible to the things that life has in store that are greater than the ones I've planned. And I think there's a tendency to want to like sit around and wait for something to happen to you, for something to come your way. Um, You know, people, it's such a cliche that people say you need to find yourself when you actually should be creating yourself, but it's true. There's nothing you're, you're, there's nothing to find. There's no, no one to, that's going to find you. Your honest effort is what keeps your future in motion and leaves it open to opportunity. And I, when I look back on my life, it's so much less about like big breaks I was given. But sometimes I think that the things that are the most transformational are quite literally the things that almost break you. No one deserves to go through terrible things. It don't deserves any sort of trauma. Of course not. But life is really messy and a lot can go wrong. And the only way I can keep my head above water when I'm in the middle of that process is kind of like what I talked about in Destiny's Inner Child with the main characters. It's knowing that this is an integral part of the plot that the main character can't see right now. Uh, where it's ultimately going to take them. And that's not to say everything happens for a reason. Actually, uh, I'd say it's to say that everything that happens, we cannot reason. And when we try to overly intellectualize in game life to a point where we're so misguided to convince ourselves that we have control over a universe that makes zero sense, we're only going to be driven crazy, falling short, of our own false blueprints. And I just think there's a level of flexibility we need to have and a confidence we need to have that we're enough, that we're worthy, that the only thing that's certain is uncertainty. And we have to find as much peace in the process as we can, even though I know that's impossible for so many and I'm really oversimplifying. But I think that as I've talked about before, my tolerance to ambiguity as a result of my job, as a result of not really being um, defined by my grades or external opinions. When it comes to professional things and my skills, that is, I'm still socially probably a mess. Uh, I just think it set me up for adulthood in a way I'm incredibly grateful for that I guess I thought I'd share. I think that what makes me so angry and why I do rage against stuff like organized religion or narrow-minded ideologies um, is because I want to reject any and all systems that set people up for failure by insisting of the most impossibly high standard and then making them feel shame and guilt for falling short of those impossibly high standards 
when those things aren't grounds for shame or guilt. They are simply factors that lie within the human experience that is deeply, deeply, inherently flawed. But those flaws help us learn and grow, and they're unavoidable. And all of the people who act perfect and who pose when photos aren't even being taken and and make you feel like they are living embodiment of that impossible standard make you believe the lie that you should be able to be at a certain point in your life and you should be able to meet all of these goals you have and things you want to be when the reality is there's something deeper and darker and more sad to me about tap dancing about putting on the show when you don't even love the music when you don't even love to dance that's how I think about a lot of like bloggers and people that are living this ideal of theoretical perfection based on the things surrounding them that they think give them value. And something so sad to me about caring more about appearing to be okay than actually being okay. And asking yourself who that serves and the deeper societal issue, especially that can exist among women of making decisions that benefit other people, that improve their perception of you. Meanwhile, taking yourself down in the process, but you'd rather sabotage your own life than to have somebody else's opinion about you change. When I'd argue the reality in most cases is that the people that actually matter, their opinion of you won't and shouldn't change and will evolve with you. But beyond that, will celebrate any of the shit you've been through that's made you a better, more interesting, more dynamic, more well-rounded person. Because I think the best people acknowledge how messy life is, acknowledge that there is not one barometer for success that definitively tells us how we're doing. We can be envious of each other's pursuits and successes in different ways, sure. But I think that by and large, most of the people I love and care about really don't ask me the questions like that try to fish for if this is legit, if this is popular, if people actually care about it, if this is good, if people come to my shows, like whatever, like people are always fishing to see if like this is actually successful because it is what I say it is because nobody can actually see what it is but me. But the most important people to me are just so unequivocally supportive of just doing something different and doing something cool. And even though I'm not a journalist or any sort of professional in the space of the spoken or written word, I am deeply appreciative of people that acknowledge the gumption it takes to pursue an interest as a career based on your gifts alone and to be willing to forego the scrutiny that comes without that sort of third-party validation and say, I'm going to try anyway. I think I could do this anyway. I don't think I need those things. I don't think I need all this bureaucratic bullshit to get where I want to go. And I think that a lot of people in life exist on the sidelines, sizing people up and trying to determine if they deserve what they have, if they earned where they are in their lives or careers. But I'd argue is that the problem in and of itself are people that try to achieve quantum physics in a course of abstract art. <laughs> Life is just not formulaic or straightforward. 
And it's so subjective that it looks so different to everybody. And oftentimes is just fundamentally a mess. And sometimes based on what a third party person calls it, it that's what it's worth. It's just, it's not always fair. It's highly subjective. It means something very differently to everybody, but at its core, it's experimental. And I think the people that find themselves sometimes deeply unhappy are the ones that obsess over finding what they perceive to be a formula for life and that they adhere closely to it. And the people that operate outside of it, finding success is utterly maddening to them because they, in their heads, did everything as close as possible to what was perceived to be right. And they're not wrong in that pursuit. It's a noble one. I wish I was a little bit more by the book sometimes. But I think that by the book can make you deeply resentful because I think everybody grows up to realize that there isn't a blueprint. There isn't a guidebook. We're all just orienteering the best we can against our own compass. And I think people that learn earlier to pay attention to that compass are better off than those that actively ignore it in favor of like societal milestones and approval. And don't get me wrong. I know I come from a place of immense privilege and I know like you not everyone can do everything they set their mind to. And it's just, it's not always an equal playing field. And I'm so aware of that. But what I mean is give yourself space and time to get bees, to try things you don't like, to move on from jobs you hate, relationships that don't work, businesses you started and failed. Like it just doesn't matter. Who cares? You know, guys, I for a long time joked that nobody wants to hear about my skincare routine, but here I stand today in the last episode of 2020 telling you about my skincare routine. And I think that means I made it because this episode is brought to you by Glossier, one of my favorite advertisers. I, you probably know them for their skincare products and for popularizing that very dewy, glowy skin look. And I've talked a lot about their makeup, uh, but I have to tell you about my three-step skincare routine that I've recently gotten into that I love because it's very simple. It's very straightforward. If you only use three products a day for your skin, this is it. One is a milky jelly cleanser. It's a pH balanced creamy gel face wash made with a blend of five skin conditioners. It's soothing condition while cleansing away dirt and excess oil and makeup. I'm always like going back and forth between types of cleanser I want to use, types of cleanser I want to use. And this is like the perfect balance of everything that legitimately takes everything off my face without completely stripping it of uh, its natural oils, only the excess oils. Uh, also the priming moisturizer is the second one, a lightweight moisturizer with an anti-redness complex, which snaps for me, uh, that lets you layer and build up to the perfect amount of hydration. And lastly, balm.com, an ultra, mo- ultra moisturizing balm that's packed with antioxidants and natural emollients to nourish and soothe your lips for clean, happy, nourished skin. I love having a, like a straightforward, simple three-product routine they have a routine for dry skin, for oily skin. The one I use is for combination because just like everything else, I can never pick one thing. I'm just going to be bone. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I'm a huge, huge fan. I The Milky Jelly Cleanser, especially, that's in all three of the routines, I feel like has like a cult following I've heard about for years. And I can't believe I didn't try until this year. And I'm 99% sure my husband's using it. And I am going to start watching the product levels like a hawk. Anyways, if you want to get a three-step routine for any skin type, visit Glossier.com slash podcast slash be there in five and for a limited time you can get 10 percent off your first order certain exclusions do apply 
That's G-L-O-S-S-I-E-R dot com slash podcast slash be there in five. You know, this holiday season, I sometimes really feel like it's patronizing when people tell me all is calm, all is bright. I don't feel calm by default. And yes, my blackout curtains are working overtime trying to prevent things from being bright because I don't want that either. But the only way I get calm, and it's a a hectic holiday season, is using the Calm app. It's one of the most powerful ways to improve your overall health and happiness in terms of just getting a good night's sleep. Uh, We all love sleeping and most of us want more of it. I sure as heck do. But getting uh, rather than getting a solid night's rest, I find myself scrolling into the deep and and watching TikToks that I have no business needing to to do because I do not need to be on witch talk or things you didn't know you needed off Amazon talk at three in the morning. 2020 has been a lot and I think we could all benefit from a little less stress and a little bit more sleep. And I'm so excited to partner with Calm, the app designed to help you ease stress and get the best sleep of your life. Calm is a whole library of programs designed for healthy sleep, like soundscapes, guided meditations, and over 100 sleep stories narrated by soothing voices like Stephen Fry, Kelly Rowland, and Laura Dern. Over 85 million people around the world use Calm to take care of their minds and get better sleep. And if you go to calm.com slash be there in five, you'll get a limited time offer of 40% off. Dang. A Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of programming. Get the Calm app and experience a transformation in the way you sleep. Again, for listeners of the show, Calm is offering a special limited time promotion of 40% off of a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash be there in five. That's 40% off and limited access to Calm's entire library and new content is added every week. I like to listen to Thunderstorms and Harry Styles. Get started today at calm.com slash be there in five. That's calm.com slash be there in five. Okay, at one point I got into the question somebody asked me of the biggest way I've evolved since leaving my hometown. And also like what I would tell my younger self. So I've just like tied a million questions together. But see, I told you this would get really intense. (laughs) Not necessarily my hometown. It's that at that point in my life, I didn't have an understanding of myself. I didn't know how much of the way I was acting was out of self-preservation because I was so sensitive. I didn't even know I was more sensitive than other people. I didn't have a good grasp on mental health. I didn't understand that all of my perceived shortcomings could be strengths in a sense. I felt so behind and so rejected and so uninteresting compared to my beautiful and accomplished friends. And these aren't things I articulated or people would have known about me. And I probably looked like I was a sorority girl having the best time ever. I just felt really bad about myself. But to be fair, the way a lot of times I was treated kind of reinforced that I should feel that way about myself. People I was like in love with or dating, like hooking up with my roommate, people like leaving me for my sorority sister and sitting in front of me in a uh, you know, lecture hall as if nothing happened. Um, I tell the story of being broken up with at an Arby's. How dare you break up with me in my house of worship? <laughs> the door irony is I asked him to go there because I wanted to DTR determine the relationship, but I thought for sure I was locking it down. He was like, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm not interested. And I tell the story on Patreon, but long story short, he, yeah, I was like, I don't want a girlfriend. I, um, uh, <laughs> I like, am not in a place where I want to commit right now and kind of like made it not really about me, but also said that we were just better as friends and he saw me as a friend. And then, but we worked at the same place. And the next day he was a boyfriend and girlfriend with like this chick who like ran snacks at the pool that he just met. And I was like his alleged best friend and we had been on and off for so long. I mean, it was, it was like, it, it was things like that. Like, how do you not take that personally? It's like you're literally telling me you think I'm great as a person, but I'm not girlfriend material. The things those, and I hate that that destroyed my confidence, but it did. 
and then that paired with, you know, like I had over, I had over like a 3.0 and I think I used my in-major GPA on my resume because my marketing classes, I like, I crushed it. But I was bad at accounting and BIT and ops and all that stuff. I mean, it just, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of school stuff wasn't as intuitive to me and I honestly wasn't trying that hard. I think that's the other problem with me too and my kind of, I'm okay with hitting with B's vibe is I think I'm. I can do well enough where I don't have to put a ton of effort into it. So I won't, if it doesn't interest me, which is a problem, I'm not saying that's right. Um, so I just kind of got used to really excelling where I was stimulated and doing okay where I wasn't. And it netted me out to be pretty average. And I think I'm smart, but I don't think I'm a genius. And everyone that did everything right, they got the internships in DC and New York and were in all the clubs and heads of the class and would tell you like, we well, got to go to job fairs. And this is how you, they, they would tell you, critique my resume and like, I just feel like in life, there's these people that are obsessed with the formula and doing all the things right. And they really overwhelm people who, like, I, I'm so, I remember being like, I got dragged to the career fair that ultimately changed my life by my friend Hannah. And I'm forever grateful because the high achievers really overwhelm me and they make me lose energy because I'm like, I can never do any of that. And they convince me that I'm not good enough because they're trying to game life. But then I'll find that I'll get things that they don't or I'll do things that they haven't. But it's because I don't try so hard to stick to the way other people did it or a blueprint or a formula that'll give me the best chance of getting there. I kind of block out the noise and try to see if I can get there on my own. And oftentimes I do. And I just think that like I was friends with a lot of high achiever types who made me feel really behind and I felt really like mediocre and my confidence was low. And when I moved away, what happened is I got a clean slate. What happened is I got to be exactly who I said I was. And I wasn't defined by the context that I was defined by my whole life, going to school with the same people K through 12. Um, so many people from my high school going to my college. I love so many of those people still, and it's not their fault. But what happens is you become like, oh, you went to this high school. Oh, you're from this town. Oh, you went to this, this college. Oh, you're a Kappa Delta. Oh, you were in the business school. Oh, you're friends with so-and-so. Oh, you dated with so-and-so. Oh, you got broken up with and cheated on by so-and-so. Oh, is that you that blacked out at that horse race, Foxfield, and screamed at your friend who you had hooked up with, who then moved on to another girl but hadn't told you and you found out at that horse race wearing a very cleavage-tastic Lily Pulitzer dress that was a little more red light than pink palm? Um, you know, there's just a million things you've done and people you've been with and ways that you're very defined by a reference group you stay in. And um, much of that is incredibly magical and is that kind of tis the damn season road, less traveled that you've romanticized as you get older because it's exhilarating to move away and shed yourself of any context. Um, I think the the unfamiliarity for me, the clean slate, I think I, I didn't really develop a sense of self until I moved away. And when people said, hi, who are you? Where are you from? What do you care about? who do you want to be? I took inventory and I was able to figure out what I wanted to be defined by that wasn't all of these kind of organizations or schools or friend groups or relationships that everybody in my life up until that point had known about. And that paired with meeting so many different types of people, the company I worked for was really, really prioritized diversity. And my friends people from different backgrounds, walks of life, races, sexuality, everything. And I was having these fascinating conversations. 
and realizing I had no idea how homogenous my environment had been up until that point. Because it was just like my world. and It was my reference group. And that's where I kind of anchored and adjusted from. But until I was removed from that, not only did I realize I didn't have enough diversity in my life, um, but beyond that, I didn't have the empathy I think I needed to, to not only be more understanding of other people's circumstances, but to also like forgive myself and understand that it's okay that I've done things I don't like, or I haven't liked who I was, or that I, you know, it's okay that I was kind of depressed in college and I was so ashamed of all of it. Like I just met people who were self-aware and dynamic and interesting and had really uh, compelling life stories and values that really started to shape mine. And I started a recalibration process of, okay, what, what the way I view the world, how much of that is mine? How much of that was my choice? I now have the choice to be the type of person I want to be and to carry out the type of values that I want to possess. And until you're older, you just, you do understandably do what other people tell you because you don't have the maturity or experience to develop an opinion. So other people's opinions become yours. And for many people, they're in line with who they are. And as an adult, and for many people, they change. But there's two sides to that. That's why I brought up Tis the Damn Season is because, you know, after the years pass and you get really busy and you're in a routine, you realize how hard it is to make friends and people move on and get married and have kids. You realize, God, those easy hometown friendships I so willingly left behind. That was so wonderful. That was so easy. That was so comfortable. Uh, you don't have those moments anymore where you are in college and you have nowhere to be and you, your friendship is expedited because you can spend all night deliriously laughing and watching TV and making a costume for a theme party. You don't, you know, spend hours complaining about recruitment or laughing about the things you did last night when you're hungover and at your funniest you, you don't have these circumstances where you've got the time and volume of things in common to expedite really meaningful, deep friendships and making friends as an adult is very hard. And I've resented moving away just as much in recent years as I think I um, was glad that I moved away in my early years. So there's no one right way to do things. And I'm not saying you need to move. But I think for me, the place I was in that felt like I was both defined by my context yet didn't identify that much with my context being taken from my environment helped me develop a sense of self helped me recalibrate what I believed and wanted based on all the new experiences I was having and the way I wanted I was experiencing the world that was very different than how people told me the world was and I got to completely reassess everything and I think that my teen years and early 20s were way marked more with using my eyes as a mirror and in my mid to late 20s it became more of a window and I saw other people and other experiences and I opened myself up to things and I enjoyed where I was more. And I, once I was able to stop making everything about me and to be so deeply self-conscious of who I was, I and understand more about me being sensitive and having issues with depression. And once I forgave myself and realized that all those things that happened to me weren't my fault, I was able to see the world as less of a reflection of what everybody thought of me and more uh, able to appreciate it for what it actually was. And I know that's really oversimplifying, but I went to therapy and I had really good heart hearts with friends and I am an empathetic person. And the more people I met that had been through more, I don't think you can meet different types of people from different walks of life, hear their stories and experiences and move forward 
unchanged. I would hope he would change. I think that the the important thing, whether wherever you physically live, is to make sure you're meeting different people that aren't exactly like you. And if their point of view or experience is different from yours, your positive one doesn't negate their negative one. And the things you can't understand do not make them untrue. And I think that everything, I think this happens with politics. It's like every issue is theoretical until it affects somebody who you know and love. And then it becomes your issue. And then you view it so differently. And I'm so grateful to all of the people I met that introduced me to who I am. Because while my foundation and humor and personality really hasn't changed and I owe everything to my family and I'll talk about them later because they're incredible and did not damage me in the least. I am just a very complicated person. I just have, I'm just intense and sensitive. And I think my, I don't think it's, it's on the one hand, I don't want to make it myself, paint myself like I'm a mad woman because I'm not, but I just think that I grew up in an era where people weren't really in touch with their feelings and emotions and compassion and empathy weren't at the forefront and being cool and hot and fun and talented and the best was. Um, and I just had gone for many years without really doing a ton of thinking about what I really wanted and needed. And it wasn't some sort of obvious overhaul. I didn't estrange from anybody in my life. It was just a slow but steady internal um rebuilding of my own confidence and that's why I always talk about how I feel stupid talking about these things is because it's like nothing that pointed or interesting or crazy has ever happened that is like these like a specific moment or trauma I go back to rather I do think that there's can be years of damage from being out of touch with your own feelings and having all the feelings but instead of really understanding why they're there and how to modify around your behavior, you spend all your time wishing you were different, wishing it away, pretending it doesn't exist or agonizing over why you can't be like everybody else. And it just wears at your self-worth and it, it translates into everything you do. Um, but yeah, I think the biggest things that changed when I moved away are um, my empathy and openness toward other people, my confidence in myself, knowing that I built and defined the things that mattered to me. And instead of being a Kappa Delta from Virginia Tech or a girl from Short Plump who worked at CPK or a single woman who had been dumped every single time she dated somebody, I was Kate. I had a job in New York City. I loved to walk around and go to long meals with my friends and have conversations about you know, politics and media and our backgrounds and our lives and what we hoped and dreamed about. I was a person that deeply cared about people and prioritized the world instead of my world. I was able to reinvent myself in a way that wasn't necessarily noticeable to people that had always known me, but completely overhauled the way I felt on the inside. And that affected everything on the outside. And then for, my career was incredibly successful. I did really well at that company. I was promoted to a director when I was 25. And I don't say that to brag, but I say that because I could not have been more average at everything else in life. And if I had used that as my gauge for my potential to be successful as an adult, if I had used my non-optimal environment you know, to give myself my own prognosis of what my life would turn out to be, it would have, I would have been building my future off of an inaccurate representation of what life has to offer and an inaccurate or stunted um, assumed usage of my skills and capabilities because I only knew what they could do up until that point. I think I grew up dreaming of being a podcaster. They didn't exist. 
the job I have now that I love so deeply that aligns with who I am are, these are all things that did not even exist when I was growing up. And that's why I don't have really five or 10 year plans. And I kind of roll with the punches and I'm a bit type B about things because I just think that if you make the right decisions for yourself, not the popular ones, not the ones to please and appease other people, but the ones that you so wholeheartedly in your gut align with and you, you're okay saying no and you're okay you know, burning a few bridges here and there if you know what you're doing is right. You're, I just think that life has the ability to pan out better than anything you could plan. And so often the people that plan so closely to other people's formula or blueprint for success that go by the book um, feel frustrated because they theoretically did everything right only to find out they couldn't ultimately control everything. I never try to control everything and I try to be pretty open to what comes my way. And even though it drives people crazy who are planners, I do find that I've been able to take on unconventional things, try new things, take risks, be less embarrassed about my choices uh, because as things come up, I don't really argue for my limitations so much as I experiment with my capabilities and I genuinely see um, everything as an opportunity to have a greater understanding either of the world around me or of myself. And I think as I got older, the more I realized that my what I'm always wanting is to feel understood. It's very Enneagram 4. I just, and I really... I'm deeply offended when I don't feel understood. Um, and to reciprocate that with the world around me is what I prioritize too. And that's why in this podcast, I'm always trying to help people understand both sides. That's why I deep dive into topics because I just want to really, really grasp it. And I think that a big issue, as I've you know talked about, especially on the episode Millennial, of why I want to feel understood, but I don't always understand myself is because... I'm very, I'm flexible and I can see things a lot of different ways. And sometimes my lack of point of view bothers me. Sometimes my wishy-washiness bothers me. Uh, but I'm trying to embrace, and through this podcast, I've tried to embrace um, that I do often operate in, in two different worlds. I, I could lean one way or the other. I, I, I like a lot of opposing things. I feel like it's hard to even describe or talk about myself sometimes. Because, uh, you know, it's like on the one hand, I'm deeply self-conscious and sensitive and I care so much what people think, but I'm also wildly confident in my abilities and I can be really obsessive and have perfectionist tendencies with my work, but I'm also incredibly type B. I think I can look really good, but I also think my face is kind of stupid and plain. I, I think it's funny how on a given day in a given circumstance, I can feel wildly differently about a certain circumstance. I can go deep or heavy. I can be frustrated or delighted by something. I've spent a lot of time being frustrated with not always having um, a consistent static way I feel about myself or a topic at a given time. But I think we can have the best of both worlds. I think for those of us that want that range and are able to see the big picture there's a lot of strength in as Nora McInerney says embracing the ands it's not always an or it's not I'm self-conscious or confident it's that I'm a little bit of both because I think there's two different parts of us there's our ego there's our superficial 
needs that tend to be more fleeting, but are no less painful. Uh, but then there's our, our physiological needs, our gut, our intuition. Uh, I think that I'm not that great. And sometimes I'm like, I, I'm shocked people are here. I'm sick of my own voice. I'm so tired of myself. But at the same time, I do think I'm good at this. And I can be both. I can be the Beth of both worlds. Mm, that's a very... <laughs> Till I take it slow, then you rock out the show. <laughs> that's the theme song to Hannah Montana, a person who literally has a split personality and that she's a regular girl on one hand, but a superstar on the other. Without the shades and the hair, she can go anywhere. Uh, but who would have thought a girl like me would double as a superstar? <laughs> Just kidding. It's actually not the worst metaphor. Not that I'm a superstar, but I do feel like the reason this job works is because I'm both the confident, accomplished person that I know I am that thinks I have the right to be here and to share with you, but I'm also the sad girl who nobody ever liked and broke up with and cheated on and always felt rejected and people would tell to like lose weight or would tell that they were, you know, didn't see me like as like sexy and I was just their friend or whatever. And all this stuff I later regressed through, like I said, <laughs> with uh, why I think I was very awkward around guys. But, um, you know, you hear all these things about yourself and then they start to become your truth. And I identify with that girl crying to snow patrol in my Ford Escape on the way home from the beer cart job I had in college thinking, I'm going nowhere. No one will ever love me. The other beer cart girl got more tips, so she must be giving handies in the back nine. Um, you know, I, I'm both of those people. I'm my fragile, damaged inner child and my now confident self. And depending on the day and time and circumstance, more of me shows. And I come on here and I'm like, I feel like I have the right to be here. But then I'm also like terrified of sounding like a Rachel Hollis. I'm terrified of giving one-sided, privileged, blind advice, even though I am because I only know my own experience. I try to crowdsource and bring people in and try to make up for that in certain ways. But it is hard to not only talk about things from my perspective. And I so am worried it will come across as tone deaf when I know I'm so lucky in so many ways. But I also want to honor that for most people, pain is pain and their experience is their experience. And the more we uh, you know, exhibit whataboutism in our life and write off our pain, we're only stunting our own growth, being the less you know, optimal versions of ourselves, and aren't able to share our gifts and help other people in the world and to move forward with our life. I think we all benefit from being more introspective, from having a greater understanding of ourselves. And the way you have a greater understanding of anything is to experiment, is to try new things is to not fall into the trap that you should base your life off of anecdotal evidence by somebody else, off of a cliche or trope, is to uh, take bad advice of somebody who's not your target market or has never, you know, has never been where you want to go. And I say this in general, not necessarily with just careers. I, you guys know how I feel about, like, I, I don't believe you should, uh, uh, what's that, what's, I hate wanderlust quotes, quit your job, get a tan, never return. Like, I, you know, if you post stuff like that, yeah, maybe never return because I think you're awful. Don't say things to people like, eat well, travel off, and like, thanks, I don't want to do either of those things. Like, of course I do. Uh, buy, quit your job, buy a ticket. I mean, I can't. Not everyone can do these things. You're so, ugh. I, I get frustrated with wanderlust. Um, there's so many quotes that are like, the, the, the world is a book and those who do not travel 
read only one page. It's like, are you honestly saying that people that don't have the disposable income and time and health to be able to travel aren't experiencing life? Like, are you kidding me? The world is a book. And those who do not pursue their curiosity in some fashion probably read only one page. But you can have a very fulfilled and dynamic and interesting life regardless of where you live and you don't have to move away. You don't have to travel, but you do need to prioritize meeting new people and trying new things and putting yourself in uncomfortable situations because I really think it's hard to meet the version of you as an adult that you want to be unless you remove yourself in some way from the environment where you've always been because the environment where you've always been is amazing and you'll always come back to it. And if it is amazing, sometimes it's not, but if you, there's nothing wrong with staying in the same place. Most people do. I kind of wish I did sometimes and I live so far away. It crushes me. But I think that it's important to remember that you, your growth could be stunted by people around you, not letting you evolve because they already know who you are and who you've been. And it is hard for people to sometimes embrace change of other people and they want you to stay back with them. Oftentimes they mean well and they love you, but you really are a function of your environment and the things and opinions and the things that people's own personal versions of truth that they tell you are the truth. And you owe it to yourself to ask questions, to doubt. You owe it to yourself to sometimes say, I don't know. I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure about most stuff, but it took me a while to be like, okay with that. Cause it's kind of misguided to think that we should know everything and we should feel one static way about everything at all times. I just think that I felt like I grew up thinking there was a very clear way things had to be, a path you had to go in life, an order things needed to be done in. And people's who people whose lives looked one way were successful and people whose lives looked another way weren't. But I just don't operate like that anymore and I'm better off because of it. And I think moving away was a big part of that. But I think that can be done by your own accord anywhere you are with whatever you have, so long as you lean into your curiosity, meeting different types of people, growing your empathy for other people's situations, and moving forward in the world, realizing that everybody's different and different is not wrong. And that is okay. And I think the more people you know, stay in such a narrow environment with the same types of people, um, and never take themselves out of their comfort zone, they not only miss the opportunity to meet new sides of themselves that might feel differently about things, how they experienced it, but also I think this is the biggest difference between like political parties oftentimes. Like some people care about the world and some people care about their world. And I understand how people can think there's nobility in either. I respect people that want to take care of their families I respect people that care about the greater good. And the reason these people butt heads is because people's individual worlds are really important to them. And the greater good of the world is very important too. And I think that what gave me balance and caring about both these things in a way that didn't make me so narrow-minded and insensitive to other people's needs, uh, especially in a political sense, uh, is having experienced much more of the world. But again, I do not mean this means you need to go to like Cabo and the Amalfi Coast. I just mean people that did not grow up exactly the way you did and seeing that they're great people with great intentions. that want to do great things with their life too. 
and that you guys grew up differently, not because it was your choice, but because life is a weird lottery and some people get things and others don't. And when you meet people in different positions that have these disadvantages that they did not ask for or choose, you, you can't move forward holding that against them. And then you'll work harder to offset the inequities that exist because people you know and care about have shown you firsthand an example of that sort of situation where there wasn't an even playing field and how people in your position of privilege or power or whatever can really change the game for people. And when you meet people that it, that affects you want to do that more. Some people are just good out of this. Fr- they're just, they're, their heart is fundamentally good and they care so deeply about everyone always. But I think some of us have the capacity to care, but it's hard for us to believe what we can't see. But I think once you see it, you can't not believe it. And that's the benefit of diversity. That's the benefit of moving away. That's the benefit of finding yourself outside of the context you've only ever known. I am so lost. If you guys are lost in this episode, I'm sorry, because I am too. Because <laughs> I keep, like, yeah, I just keep answering so many questions within questions. And, you know, I hope hope this is a good use of your time. Um, somebody said, what is something that you're proud of that you don't talk about a lot? Um, the I did uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters for like six or seven years. Um, I had a little sister that I was matched with when she was 12, I think. And I was with until she graduated from high school and big brothers, big sisters is a program that matches one-on-one mentors, um, with students from all different walks of life who could use another adult in their corner um, helping them with homework, helping them, you know, kind of navigate their future, their schoolwork. Um, if they want to go to college, trade school, any sort of higher education, um, uh, who are, I mean, largely will also watch, watch out for their safety and, and signs of, uh, you know, trouble at home and, uh, who are mandated reporters and, um, you know, kind of, are a consistent uh, adult figure in young people's lives. And I'm just a huge believer in, in one-on-one mentorship. And I think we try to involve ourselves in large-scale philanthropy sometimes, which is important. But, like, I just think mentorship programs are so, so crucial to, um, you know, not that I'm any sort of shining example of what somebody should do in their life, but I wanted to be an example of somebody who allowed and helped somebody to explore their opportunities and who could be a sounding board um, when there was trouble at home and at school, when grades were falling. Um, this is probably this big brothers, big sisters process was like a huge lesson to me. And how oh, insane of a parent I might be because I cared so much about her and wanted wanted for her the things I knew she wanted. Did she was not always um, at a place in her life where she could handle the problems that were thrown at her, or she wasn't always. Um, you know, she she had growing up to do, and it's easy to prioritize the things that happen in middle and high school, the trivial social things, and to think that these things don't matter. And I would watch grades go up and down, and I just like, I don't know, it would kill me because I knew she was capable of so much more. And I definitely maybe pushed her a little harder than I should have at times. And I just feel so strongly about people understanding the lengths of their capabilities and not being so convinced that their current environment is in any way indicative of what they could ultimately do in life, but you have to get yourself in other environments to thrive. 
And um, yeah, so I don't know. It's a lot of too trying to mitigate and prevent at-risk behavior. Um, but most of it is that, you know, the big part, the best part about Big Brothers Big Sisters is you meet every week in the school year. I met her every Wednesday from when she was in seventh grade to 12th grade. Um, and you have to show up and you have to be consistent and you have to accept that there's, it takes a long time for people to warm up to you and to trust you. And you're not always going to get it right. And, um, at times you don't feel like you're moving the needle at all, but I think there's something so important about being consistent, about being a third party they can trust, about making sure they're safe, about, um, you know, giving firsthand anecdotal experience from somebody that comes from a different place, just to just give them an alternative opinion and to not project what you consider success to be onto them, but help them realize their potential and help them get as close to what they perceive as successful by the time you're done with the program. It's the last thing you do. And sometimes it's just having alternate viewpoints like, you know, the assumption that well, I can't go to college because we don't have money, if that was the issue. Um, but there's so many different scholarships available and you kind of helping to navigate that process with them and help them write essays and apply to the right places and blah, blah, blah. Or in Chicago, you have to apply to your high school. And that was a big part of the process. Um, I think that uh, for me, it was really a firsthand um, education in how many systemic disadvantages exist, especially within a, a city like Chicago that's heinously segregated, that has um, a public school system that's I got a whole host of issues and um, that really kind of showed me how spoon-fed I, many things to me were in life and how I needed to be working overtime to overcorrect these inequities that exist for such a wonderful young woman who is so smart and has so much potential to do everything in my power to offset any disadvantages that are built into the systems that she grew up within because it's not fair and it is wrong and it is hard to understand how to fix on a macro level because it's so complicated. But at a, at a micro level, at a person-to-person -person level, it doesn't feel that complicated because you can utilize the privileges, resources, network, and things that you have and know from your circumstances that you grew up with and that you maybe worked hard for but do not necessarily fundamentally deserve to help somebody who deserves just as much as you do have access to all the things you did to get you where you are. And I just think that the person-to-person -person matching one-on-one -on -one mentoring is so overlooked in favor of these like huge sweeping initiatives. And I can't recommend Big Brothers Big Sisters enough. Like the city of Chicago has an abysmal graduation rate. Big Brothers Big Sisters, people that graduate through the program have a 99% graduation rate. Like I have goosebumps saying that. It makes a difference. It really does. And I can't encourage people to get a, to, to be a part of this program more. I did the one that's on site where you don't, because I don't have a car. And in a lot of places you like have to have a car. And you have to meet at certain places and blah, blah, blah. But I would go to this same on-site place every week. And some of our closest friends are from there. I have friends that got married that met there. Um, I like doing the program because we found a friend group from it. And um, it was a really special period of my life. And my little sister is a very special woman who now who got a full ride to school, who's now studying chemistry, who wants to go into some sort of medical or science field, like a woman in STEM. Like I'm, like, I'm so proud of her. Um, and uh, 
this has nothing to do with me, but rather everything to do with her always being who she always was. And I knew she could be and the blips that come with adolescence that come with difficult situations you find yourself in, the blips that come with not everybody being in the most favorable familial, financial, social environment at all times in any small ways I could help um, course correct. I did. Uh, and, you know, other than that, it's all her. But I was honored to watch her grow up and watch her graduate. It was a really cool experience. So that's something I'm really proud of that. I don't think I talk about that much, but more importantly, I would encourage anybody to be a part of that program. Big Brothers, Big Sisters, it's everywhere. Um, and I think now they're even doing remote mentoring and I don't know, they have a really serious matching process where they like make sure you are the right person for each kid. And it's really, really impressive and cool. And I love the organization so much. So anyway, you guys, I need to, I need to rematch honestly, but this is uh, obviously a weird year. Um, okay. Maybe we'll wrap up this first hour and then we can get into lighter stuff. I think I'm just struggling with like sometimes how to talk about uh, 2020, you guys, <laughs> how to, I guess I don't even need to conclude now, but you know, while we're having a serious convo, I think some, something that's really hard about this is like, even if I'll try to end on a positive jokingly by like answering your more lighthearted questions, the reality is I don't feel light about it at all. You know, <laughs> I think the human connection and empathy piece to me is like the biggest lesson, even though we already knew that was important. Um, I think for me, it was just an interesting experience because like I, I, I le- when we went into lockdown, I can legitimately entertain myself for 70, 72 hours straight, like on the internet alone, I could read and read and read and be, and just have the best time. Um, I was deeply worried for the world, but at first I genuinely was not worried for myself because I'm gen, I'm, if, if, if I have Greg and tugboat and a roof over my head and my physiological needs, I, I cannot complain. Uh, but even I like slowly, but surely I, I began to curse the inside of my shared city mid-rise walls where I once found refuge. I began to resent Netflix and, television and ache for tugboat dealing with his newly limited space and i glamorized the things i feared like the suburbs and grass and storage and strip malls i just to stay stimulated i made tiktoks and recorded podcasts i did an episode where i fantasies about shopping at a marshall's followed by a deep dive again about dipping sauces i took up the recorder and then subsequently was mad at my spouse for not respecting my music <laughs> And after a while, I, I needed to pop the bubble of this forced, frugal surprise I wanted to live in by just being so falsely hopeful all the time to really open my eyes to what was going on in the world, to the harsh realities, the internet falsities, the unimaginable tragedies that presented themselves within the pandemic's many phases. The, the racism I had the audacity to often write off because it didn't exist within me. To that statement's naivete I bathed in, misattributing my submergence in the system to its non-existence. To the disappointing lack of cooperation we've witnessed through individuals who are more concerned with their personal freedoms than working toward our country's collective freedom from suffering. As much as I want to end 2020 telling you this was a time of personal growth and reprioritization, 
I, I genuinely struggle with the literature that lobbies for silver linings. Even though I do usually love to mix metals, I find those sort of nuggets to be fool's gold. I don't want to get to the worst case scenario to learn lessons. I don't want people to suffer and to lose their loved ones and to be over here like, at least I started back up with my music, as if it's a welcome byproduct of people's suffering. I want to encourage you guys. Be uplifting, but all the same. Not try to package this in a pretty bow as if it's something that we'll easily move on from when realistically I think that we still have a lot of work to do um, that I still don't really know what lies ahead that you know the realities of like not always needing to romanticize stuff I see no reason we needed this and I romanticize none of it people died and are still dying essential workers were and I mean, still are pushed to their absolute limits. Loved ones are separated and so often amidst their, you know, most precious of remaining days. I think I've like struggled with this last episode of 2020 and needed some of your direction and what I talk about because like, I don't know what to say. But I guess all I can really say is this was bad. That was bad. That was awful on so many levels, and nobody deserved any of that. And no silver lining exists from a fucking cumulonimbus I did not invite into my space. Just like the silver linings in my jewelry box of yesteryear, I will tell that one to please return to Tiffany's as well, where it belongs, in 2004. Because I do not need your chain link bullshit anymore, even though mine was from Chinatown and said, please return to Turfany's. Um... <laughs> Whenever I think of silver linings, I think of, well, silver linings playbook, but I also picture like, like a yearman on a cloud. <laughs> They're meant to be stacked. Um, anyway, you guys, I guess just like so often I very unsatisfyingly tell you, I don't know how to feel. I don't think one way or the other. I just, I seek to understand. I seek to exist in the gray. For me, the pursuit is not uh, to finding out what is fundamentally right or wrong but the pursuit is the is the, the joy of the process the pursuit is the examination of life that makes it worth living and i guess my conclusion for 2020 is i don't really have one i have no words of comfort i i don't know if i have lessons to teach if i wrap this up nicely then poetically i'd be lying uh cuz i just don't feel good about this year it wasn't good and it's I don't think I'll ever feel it It was any ounce of me will feel that this was worth it for whatever outcome it yields. Um, however, I do want to thank you guys because I think through the PowerPoint parties, Patreon, Facebook, your DMs on Instagram, your reviews, any interaction I've had with you or interaction you've had amongst yourselves as part of a Beth, if you will. I think the one thing I've maybe realize more than ever is uh is and i say this as an introvert who actively withdraws from social situations <laughs> to recharge um i i i can definitely be kind of a loner i i, I crave 
being understood, mutual understanding so badly. But I get I get tired in social situations. I feel weighed down sometimes by trying to like read and match other people's energy. And I think I definitely, especially the further I got into this job, I think it made me a little reclusive because at times I feel a little embarrassed or exposed. They say all these things to so many people and it makes me feel uncomfortable around the people I know the best if I feel like they've listened or if they've ever made me feel a little bit weird about it. And um, I don't know. I have a tendency to disappear. Uh, but the coming here every week, serving as a source of, at the very least, consistency, even though it's so erratic when I actually post these episodes, but you know, it's, I like to say it's on brand. It's part of the charm. You never know when an episode's going to come out sometime Thursday. <laughs> um, I, I think the only thing that makes really bad stuff manageable is not to pretend that it wasn't bad but to find community and commonalities in our experiences and to endure it together rather than alone. And I think that the more introverted side of me that just desperately craves crowds and groups and weddings, hell, I'd put on a goddamn floral bridesmaid robe from Etsy that is paper thin and barely fits me and just cuts me right in the love handle in all the wrong ways. I would still do that and take all the photos and get the corkscrew curls just to be in the presence of other people celebrating other people's life milestones and accomplishments just for the sake of being there and supporting them. And I feel like it, it's easy to feel burnout and get disenchanted by a lot of the things we make so much fun of. One of those things also being social media and influencers and online communities but the reality is human connection is all that keeps us afloat and i feel lucky to live in an era where we're enduring this paired with uh, the ability to have access to one another in a digital sense and there's so many downsides to that of course with the you know lack the, the almost ability to use it in place of human interaction but i think in this case the internet's been a really, well, powerful agent of destruction in like a QAnon sense. But um, I think for this community, uh, it's really been a great way to relate and connect and to feel like we have absolutely no idea what's going to go on in the world or happen tomorrow. But at the very least, we're experiencing that nightmare together <laughs> and i hope the ubiquitous nature of this experience makes us go a little bit easier on one another and um is more importantly ourselves well we can't change what's happened this year i think it's absolutely fair to hope pray whatever it is you do to manifest the life you want to live i hope we see better days um, I more importantly hope that applying the same logic we've discussed, <laughs> just as it's important to believe evidence-based solutions in favor of heuristics, assumptions, conspiracies, and the like, uh, rather than the objective of, you know, I've seen better days, let's May we vaccine better days and hope that uh, science research and the 
uh, incredibly hard work of so many medical professionals around the world will lead us to a place where we cannot erase what happened, but apply a solution to a thing that did and move forward the best way we know how, using data as our guide. <laughs> I want to be a vaccinista. I want to promote the crap out of this. I will, you, could not, I could, you could not get that needle in my arm faster. I want to do whatever it is we can so we can be together again, celebrate one another again, and get to enjoy firsthand the only thing that wove these miserable days together, which was human connection, <laughs> empathy, togetherness, unity. Even though many times, most times, actually it didn't feel that way, I feel very lucky that largely this community is incredibly supportive, like-minded, empathetic, understanding, and reasonable and in support of science and I don't know what I did to deserve such an awesome group of, of people but um, I am forever grateful I have booked ads through next December and I'm in contracts where I have to legally provide podcast episodes which is really cool theoretically this time next year I could still be around if everything goes well <laughs> and regardless of what holiday you're celebrating or who you're with or what may be going on in your life, what is to come, please, for the love of God, pour a glass of wine. If you don't drink, pour a glass of something else. I, <laughs> I literally couldn't think of another liquid to put in a cup besides wine is my point. That was really pathetic. Um, whatever it is that wets your whistle. Uh, at the very least, celebrate to having made it this far. Because like I always say, just like my lack of conclusion with what the hell 2020 was all about, just like my encouragement of in wanting people to experiment independent of result, but in, in seeking of a greater just fundamental understanding of whatever it is that they're interested in. And just as I want you to celebrate that you've made it this far, despite not knowing exactly when it will all end, the entire point of living in this inconclusive, frustrating gray. The entire point of the be there and five of it all is that sometimes the only, the, the most true statement you can say is that you're almost there. You don't know exactly when, but you're on your way. You'll get there soon. You've made it this far. And this is one of my favorite songs by one of my favorite bands, the Goo Goo Dolls. And it sums up exactly how I feel that I was having trouble articulating. And until next time, when, you know, uh, the beginning of next year, we'll start out on a light note. Just for good measure, just in case it makes a difference. For now, I will quote, and you asked me what I want this year. And I try to make this kind and clear. Just a chance that maybe we'll find better days. I'll see you in 2021. As always, let me know your thoughts and I will let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear. And you ask me what I want this year and I try to make this kind and clear just a chance that maybe we'll find better days. Cause I don't need boxes wrapped in strings And desire to love and empty things Just a chance that me